Welcome back, everybody. It's CFB Winning Edge, the podcast edition. I'm your host, Scott Bogman. Follow me on Twitter at Bogman Sports. I'm joined, as always, by the owner and proprietor of CFB Winning Edge, Nicholas Ian Allen. Follow him on the Twitter at CFB Winning Edge and Xavier Trish at Xavier underscore Trish, T-R-I-C-H-E on the Twitter machine. Today, we are continuing our uh, team previews. We're going to go 110 to 101. And Nick has been working super hard. That's why this one's out a little bit later in the week because you just wrapped up stat projections and you have made a Patreon post for them and all that good stuff. I And I am to understand it did shift the rankings a little bit. So we had some teams switch. So why don't you tell us what would have switched for us uh, so far here and how happy are you to be done with uh, statistical projections, Nick? Oh, I'm I'm very happy to be done. It was uh, <laughs> uh, pretty proud of how it all came together. Uh, we had some outside help, a couple of extra hands, uh, which definitely big thanks to our Patreon supporters for helping to fund that, helping us be able to hire um, some outside help for that, uh, make it go a little bit quicker. But it's it, it was a major project. I mean, it was the last big thing on our preseason calendar as far as you know all the google sheets go um and we completely started over uh, we've, we've had a stat projections database the last couple of years where we go through show um coaching history team history you know team performance uh several stats things like that for the last several years and we're able to use those with sort of you know weighted averages and, and kind of blend the team and the head coach history and the play calling history to, to try to help project uh, not only team stats for the upcoming year, but, um, you know, we have a lot of listeners who are into college fantasy football and DFS and, and things like that. And so we have uh, player projections that are part of that as well. And if you listen to us at all last year, you know that. Um, we've got three projection models that, that uh, give us projected point spreads for each game. And uh, one of those is a stats only model. And that's what this uh, statistical projection database, that, that's what helps us get to those um, projected point spreads. And, and this is kind of the closest thing that we do uh, that comes out, I believe, and I don't know that the, the you know, complete inner workings of SP plus um, at ESPN and Bill Connolly. But if I were to, to guess our, our, what we call our prism rating our projected scoring margin rating, uh, is the closest thing that, that we have to, uh, SP plus, like it, it only cares about stats and, you know, we pull out all of our talent numbers. We pull out, um, you know, any, anything else we do experience wise production, uh, from a player level, um, and, and we just look at the team history, the uh, head coaching history, and the uh, play caller history. But um, last year, projecting against the spread wasn't great. And actually, the way that we had set it up um, to do uh, our, you know, our method wasn't as good as it could be. So I wanted to completely start over. Um, we uh, did a better job of um, using rate stats, you know, their, their pace, uh, built on pace, you know, how many plays per game, how many uh, seconds between snaps. That's something that goes into it now. Um, and, you know, by, by tearing it all down, building it all back up, I think that we really did uh, build a much better 
projection model, but also helped us get um, hopefully, you know, a better job, do a better job of projecting uh, those individual players and, and things like that. Because we really dug in and looked at, you know, what did the starting quarterback do the last three years? What did the backup quarterback do? You know, what's the percentage of snaps going to the starter? And, and it all filters through. So if, if you're interested in uh, that, whether it's just having easy access to uh, the, the last three years history um, for team and coach and, and play caller uh, or player, you know, I, I think it's helpful for that. Um, if you're a CFF or DFS uh, player, I think it's helpful. Uh, and then hopefully if you're, you know, interested in those projected point spreads, I, I uh, anticipate we'll have more success with that. No guarantees, obviously, but um, I think it, at the very least, our process will be a lot better this year. So I'm, I'm excited about that. I'm very thankful for our Patreon supporters and for our help that we had uh, putting that together. And, and it's, it's a load off, uh, you know, <laughs> having it out in the world now. And, and so happy about that. Happy to, to shift gears a little bit. And then also, I know we're already five minutes in, uh, <laughs> but uh, hoping to work a little quickly today, because I didn't even tell you guys this when we started, I am now a homeowner. And I've oh, get, nice. I've got to get back to uh, the new house and, and uh, get some yeah. work going before I get myself in uh, in the dog. Trouble? House. So, yeah. yeah. Nice. So, so we got to work quickly today. <laughs> no, no Nick on the couch 2022. Let's go. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Don't, we don't even have a couch right now. So uh, <laughs> you're going to have to. Yeah, we're going to going to have to figure that out. Just so you guys know, Xavier and I have given up on housewarming gifts for Nick. Uh, you know, it's it would be every six months if, if we had to here. So, all right, Nick. So since we're in a time crunch here, let me ask you this. What teams that we've already covered, because the rest from, you know, 101 on, 100 up, you, you can just flip on us. But what from the teams that we've already covered or will cover today, what would have moved after this biggest update? Uh, so one team that we already discussed, we discussed last week, Ohio actually would have moved up a few spots into, uh, the discussion today. Southern Miss also moved up a little bit. They're at 106, uh, for Southern Miss and 107 for Ohio. Um, so a couple of the teams on our slate, Duke and Wyoming actually moved out, uh, moved down a little bit and into that, you know, previously covered, uh, territory, um, maybe the most interesting thing, and maybe it's only interesting to me. We actually have a new worst team. We have a new 131. Oh, new, yeah, new belt, new, new champion. Mexico, uh, fell, uh, one spot <laughs> or Yukon moved up one spot, whichever it, it, you know, however you want to describe it. Um, this was just to make John Lobb happy. There you the go. Could this be. was the only reason it happened. <laughs> but, uh, also maybe of more interest, we actually have a new, number one which took me by surprise we're, we're basically in a uh co-number one situation alabama is is certainly uh i think understandably the the favorite to win the national championship texas joined them up there clearly <laughs> texas the is in the top 10 clearly and solidly oh, in the top God. 10 uh but no ohio state is our new number one. They would only be favored by, I mean, less than half a point against Alabama on a neutral field. So uh, like I said, basically co-number ones, but the update for the stats only model um, really likes the Buckeyes. And, and so uh, we'd talked previously that, you know, I, I think there was a little value on Ohio State 
uh, to win the national championship. I'm not sure if it's, you know, there anymore, uh, but uh, they're a definite contender. And those two are, are kind of in a tier of their own, but interesting to see that we actually did have to make the switch and Ohio state is listed as our uh, you know, number one in our power rankings in the uh, FBS team profiles. And look, there's a lot of other stuff that we'd love to talk about. Uh, we would love to talk about some of these teams uh, moving different conferences. There's all kinds of rumors. Now there's a rumor that Georgia and like four other teams are trying to make their own conference, which I don't know if there's any truth to that or if that's just a weird rumor. Uh, there's all kinds of stuff, but, but we got to run. We, we got to roll here. So we're going to skip that discussion. We're going to save it for when we move past these uh, team previews and dive in on them here. And we start at 110 with Duke. And um, we're going to go up to 101, but following an upset week one loss to Charlotte, Duke won its next three games, including a pair of his P5 opponents. However, an 0-8 ACC record sank the Blue Devils to 3-9, and and David Cutcliffe was fired. Uh, the DK win total for them is three. Uh, we have them at 4-8, and eight, which would make us over the three wins. But uh, the question for Duke, Nick, is, they were one of the worst P5 teams in the country, and you had them there, I believe, before the season started, if I'm not mistaken, because uh, I remember we were pretty far out on Duke at this point last season. Um, but now they have they rank 115th in returning production. They have uh, a brand-new head coach, obviously. There's just not a lot of confidence, it seems, to be instilled in Duke, but we're over on their win total. So what makes us just a little positive when they look so bad uh part of me wonders if um duke looked so bad at the end of last season and you never want to use you know the word quit but i don't know if you guys remembered that game against louisville where malik cunningham like basically broke the points record for like cff and dfs in the game but that duke defense you know statistically they were pretty bad uh all year but they were they just looked horrible that that night and that was late in the year they were you know winless in acc play and it just looked kind of like you know sure malik cunningham is is incredibly talented and, and a fun player and can uh put up big yards and and uh, touchdowns against anybody but there was something about that Duke defense that just didn't quite look right that that game. So I wonder if it was a situation where, you know, the writing was on the wall. They knew Cutcliffe wasn't coming back. Um, they were, you know, there wasn't a whole lot to play for other than pride. And maybe there just wasn't, you know, that, that uh, you know, wasn't, wasn't doing it for them. Uh, plus Duke always is going to be on the low end, you know, as far as roster strength and raw talent and, and things like that. So um, I wonder if last year's Duke team, especially at the end of the year, might have been worse than what the actual, you know, they, they actually even under uh, played, you know, their performance was even worse than, than you know, that relatively low uh, talent level last year just because Bar was that low outside and things. they did not jump over it sure sure and so I, I think there might be a little bit of you know things weren't as bad as they seemed and sometimes a new head coach even when you're replacing somebody who was a, a really successful head coach at Duke David Cutcliffe um, sometimes I can give you a little bit of a jolt 
Uh, I think they definitely, I think the coaching change will definitely help the defense. Mike Elko is one of the best defensive coordinators in college football, had a you know really strong defense the last couple of years at Texas A&M, had success at Notre Dame and Wake Forest, uh, which that's also you know kind of an interesting fit. He's familiar with the ACC, but he's also specifically familiar with the type of program that Duke has because Wake Forest you know has a lot of the the academic you know uh, size and and all that stuff very similar. So it's going to be interesting. I, I think that. Uh, even though he's a first year head coach, you know, strong defensive background, great resume, uh, has been a lot part of a, a lot of successful programs. I think he's going to get them playing at a higher level defensively. Um, but there's a lot of new faces on offense. So it's going to be interesting to see, you know, if, if they can kind of maintain the level where they were offensively, um, and, and last year they were not spectacular, but 97th uh, in our offensive team performance, but they were 122nd in defense. So if they can, you know, shave quite a bit off of that uh, with Elko and Rob Smith as the defensive coordinator, Kevin Johns, pretty, you know, highly thought of offensive coordinator coming from Memphis. Um, they've got some interesting pieces and, and they have to replace a lot of starters. They're, you know, uh, top passer last year transferred to FIU, Gunnar Holmberg. Uh, their leading receiver, Jake Bobo, transferred to UCLA. Top rusher, Mateo Durant, 1,200 yards last year. He's gone. Uh, and then, you know, Jack Wallaball was their highest rated offensive lineman at, at center, and he's out of eligibility as well. So um, they do have some talent coming back. Jalen Calhoun's very experienced wide receiver. Jordan Waters has done some good things. Uh, you know, had, had a few. Uh, kind of highlight runs, at least one I remember where he just uh, stiff arm planted a guy uh, early in the year last year. Um, and they've got some really athletic, you know, uh, talented quarterbacks who just aren't necessarily proven, but but uh, can give something on, you know, certainly on the ground. So if, if they're able to kind of maintain a, a decent level of, of performance on offense, uh, at least not slip into the deep you know, triple digits, if that defense can step forward, and it is, you know, certainly the more uh, experienced group with guys like Shaka Howard, Hayward, excuse me, uh, who is an all ACC caliber linebacker uh, with him coming back with Dwayne Carter, who, you know, had 37 pressures as an interior defensive lineman last year, RJ Oban, five sacks last season, uh, Dwayne Carter, uh, so, you know, had the the pressures of course but four and a half sacks last year as well so if they're able to to kind of build on that decent core of talented players on defense and if they're coached up a little bit better um i think that you know what we saw last year especially at the end of the year was pretty close to to the floor at duke um at, at least as we know it in the last decade or so so i feel like in a way there's almost nowhere to, to go but up. And they do have, you know, several winnable games, the non-conference schedule. You mentioned that they beat um, both Kansas and Northwestern last year. Those two are both on the schedule again this year. They also play Temple. They also play North Carolina A&T. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that they start 4-0. And then they open ACC play with a you know, definitely a new look Virginia team with a Georgia Tech team that has really, really struggled uh, in recent years. So there's a chance by the midway point of the season, they've actually already met this win total. So even though we're 
relatively, you know, we're not the highest on Duke. They're, they're in the triple digits in our power rankings, but every one of their first six games is winnable. Um, so if they're able to, you know, get two out of those six, even, then they give themselves a chance in the second half of the year. And, and I think it's definitely possible that they get three or maybe even four wins before October 8th. So I uh, don't have high hopes for the second half of the schedule, but I, I do think that the, the front half, especially if they take a step forward on defense, um, you know, they, they've got a chance to, to improve on their win total this year. Xavier, what do you see when you look at Duke? Can they get to this? Uh, you know, it's a low bar. Three is the DK toll. You think they can get to four? Yeah, Duke will be a team I'd be very bullish on getting to that four total, to be perfectly honest with you. And Nick talked about it. Um, you know, their schedule is fairly easy to start off the year, right? You think Northwestern is probably your hardest competition in your first four game at Evanston. So obviously it's also an away game. Uh, but, you know, Temple, North Carolina, a and going to Kansas, depending on what that Kansas team looks like, that should be a, at the very least a toss-up for Duke. Uh, Virginia, Te- I'm sorry, Virginia at Georgia Tech, which at that point in the season – Jeff Collins might not even be there. Who knows? Uh, so that's also another aspect of it. They might have, you know, completely gone away from what they've been doing at Georgia Tech the last couple of years. Uh, I just feel like the ACC this year is a conference that will lend itself to at least one or two teams having a far better record than maybe we would have thought before the year started. And Duke might be one of those teams, especially when you talk about their non-conference schedule being uh, as winnable as it is. When you look at them from a, uh, a tra- recruiting space it's actually kind of weird so duke is over the last couple of years brought in some pretty good transfers uh they, they clearly went away from that this year um i feel like that might be something for the new regime to change a little bit i feel like at the end of cliff's reign over there at duke they kind of just started going for like you know highly productive transfers chris rump was one of them uh if i'm not mistaken uh chase bryce was another one uh, who they got and just went after uh, to, to fix their quarterback situations. So I think that is something that you'll see them go away from. Uh, they also were able to bring in a four-star in this past class with Vince, uh, Vincent Anthony Jr., uh, four-star defensive lineman. So I'm excited to see what they're able to do from a recruiting standpoint uh, when they're not trying to go necessarily for transfers. Uh, uh, transfer rating for them was 86th this year. So – I don't think that they're going to be touching the transfer portal as much. Now, obviously, I could be completely wrong. Mike Elko may want to go ahead and, and just, you know, set a stamp this year and the next year go into the transfer portal uh, more heavily than he did this season. But even when you look at their 2023 class already, they've got 24 hard commits in their 2023 class alone. Elko is hitting, you know, the recruiting streets pretty hard, especially within the North Carolina and Virginia area. So uh, I think you're, you're going to see Duke go away from transfers and go much, much towards, you know, players within the state and try to develop then rather get maybe the proven product already. Uh, now the next team up here is Wyoming at 109 and they jumped out to a 4-0 non-conference uh, in non-conference play, but they lost their first four matchups against uh, Mountain West opponents. They uh, did earn bulgeability with wins against Colorado State, Utah State, and they beat Kent State in the Potato Bowl. Uh, the DK total is five. We have them just over five in projections, but five and seven as a record. So officially we're over the five, but we have them right there. But the question is here, Nick, you know, they suffered heavy losses in the transfer portal. Um, They rank 129th in returning production. So even worse than Duke. So with a roster like this, with all these transfers and, you know, a team that is continually in these triple digits outside of maybe the years they had Josh Allen. And even then, 
the rest of the team wasn't fantastic. Why are we optimistic on Wyoming and them, you know, being over this win total? Uh, yeah, well, so it, it's interesting. There's a couple of things that you mentioned that are going to be kind of a theme today in, in a, at least a small way. Um, one, we're over on nine out of the 10 teams uh, that we're going to talk about today. But I believe only three of those are, you know, more than half a win different. So we have a lot of our projections that are almost exactly you know, within uh, some of them within just percentage points of uh, the the win total that the odds makers have there at, at, at you know at, at DraftKings that we're referencing. Um, next, you know, there are a few teams on this list today who are at the extreme end of uh, the returning production. Uh, you know, one or two, you know, on the positive side, but a couple of them definitely on the negative side. And Wyoming being also, as you mentioned, uh, really, really, you know, low in our roster strength rankings. There's not a lot of uh, high school talent in and around Wyoming. And, you know, even if there were, or at least the way we think about high school talent, right? I mean, the numbers aren't high. Um and just uh, even if if there are great players out there, it's difficult for us to know um, or the recruiting sites to to you know, properly scout. And so it makes sense that there there are certainly going to be some underrated players there. Um, so that is reflected in our roster strength numbers. So that's long winded for me to to start thinking about answering the question. But I think to to get around to that finally. Wyoming has done a pretty good job of replacing talented players. I mean, even after Josh Allen left, right, they didn't see a, a huge, huge drop off. Um, and they are able to kind of overcome the talent on hand, at least the way that that we are able to calculate, you know, put a number on that talent. So uh, Craig Bull has done a decent job of keeping Wyoming highly competitive. And there was – some concern, and I think understandably so, uh, when so many starters transferred, um, you know, right at the end of the season, that that maybe Bull was running them off. I mean, he's on the older side. You would uh, assume, perhaps, doesn't connect as well with players uh, than than some other coaches. Um, so it's it's it was an interesting thing to see. Um, and it, it sounded like some of the things that I you know read after were guys like Isaiah Nair who transferred to Texas, really talented guy, explosive, explosive receiver. Um, Xavier Valade transferred to Arizona State. So these are guys you know moving up. Um, several defensive backs transferred and, and are likely to start uh, either at a, a similar you know, uh, G5 level or, or, you know, even some made the, the move to the power five. So they have done a good job of finding underrated players, developing guys into uh, productive college players and sent a few of them to the NFL, like, you know, Chad Muma uh, this past year, they've had linebackers the last couple of drafts um, go, but uh, sorry, I wanted to get a, an exact number Four starting defensive backs transferred one to Texas Tech, one to UCLA, one to Oklahoma, and the other to Western Kentucky. So, I mean, these are these are guys who are highly thought of, not just experienced, but uh, are able to go and, and land 
at a you know step up um, from you know quote unquote step up from from group of five Wyoming to power five uh, football. So you know it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough for Wyoming, but they did bring in a transfer and Andrew Peasley to play quarterback after both of their starters uh, transferred out. He didn't play a whole lot at Utah State, but when he did, was pretty exciting. Seems to fit kind of what they want to do, get the quarterback on the run a little bit. Titus Swin uh, actually had kind of taken, you know, maybe that that number one running back spot on the depth chart away from Xavion Valaday uh, by the end of last season. So it's going to be uh, fun to see if he can carry a, you know, really heavy workload. Um, they've got some talent at – uh, receiver coming back. Gunnar Gentry was out all year with a uh, an injury last year. So, you know, will he be back to, to full strength and be able to contribute? Uh, Trayton Welch is an experienced tight end. They've got multiple starters on the offensive line coming back. Four guys who, you know, saw significant playing time. They were able to add uh, some talent to replace some of the defensive players uh, that they lost, bringing in, you know, Keelan Cox uh, was a walk-on at Alabama, but, you know, coming from Alabama, Michigan State linebacker uh, Cole DeMarzo coming in, a couple of corners, one from Wisconsin, one from Ole Miss, Deron Harrell and Ja'Cory Hawkins. So you pencil those guys in, if not as starters, you know, major contributor type players. So uh, Wyoming, you know, traditionally has played at a pretty slow Offensive pace, according to our brand new uh, stat projections, our projected pace for uh, Wyoming this year is is you know down at the very very bottom of college football. Uh, you know we we expect they'll average twenty seven point four three seconds per snap. If you want. You know, real specific stuff we got for you, uh, which is certainly in the triple digits. But, you know, expect them to shorten the games, play decent defense, hand off to Swin, let the quarterback, let the quarterback run, play kind of an ugly game and have a chance to win, you know, 21-20 in the fourth quarter. So uh, I think because of the style of play that we would expect from Wyoming, even though they've got a tough, you know, start to the season schedule, Illinois is a power five team. Uh, Tulsa's a con, you know consistent bowl team. Air Force we're pretty high on. BYU we're pretty high on. If they can get through that relatively healthy and and you know pick up a couple of wins, uh, then I think they they actually do have a pretty good shot in the second half of the schedule. And they've got two bye weeks to make another run at a bowl game just by staying in games and, and giving themselves uh, a chance to win. So. Um, that that's I guess a lot of you know gut. I don't have a whole lot of hard numbers to say. You know this is why we should expect Wyoming to uh, stay competitive despite this roster strength number, despite this returning production number. Uh, but at this point, you know Craig Bowl has kind of earned a, a little bit of the benefit of the doubt, at least from me. So uh, I can see I can talk myself into Wyoming enough to think that they're just not going to completely fall off a cliff, even if they are on paper, one of the least talented teams and, you know, one of the least experienced teams. So uh, that's usually not the way I like to do things, but with a few teams that kind of operate outside of, of uh, you know, just a little bit different. And I think Wyoming is one of those. Um, I think they're going to be, I think they're going to be competitive and they're going to have a shot to, you know, 
get to this win total. I wouldn't expect much beyond it. Uh, but it also wouldn't shock me if we see Wyoming in a bowl game again next year, this year. Xavier, what do you think about uh, this Wyoming team? Do you think they can get to this five win total? Yeah, I don't see why not. Like, this is a team that I think, to, to what Nick's credit, has an opportunity to kind of right the wrongs that they had last season. And, and they bring back some decent talent. You know, he, he, you know, he equated to it already. But I also think, and what I like so much is that their non conference schedule isn't too daunting. Now, they've got some tough games here with like Tulsa, but that's not overly daunting. And it's at Wyoming. We've seen Wyoming do some amazing things at home. I think it was only a couple of years ago. Uh, I can't remember who they upset, but they've, they've had some pretty impressive wins at home. And going up to Wyoming is no easy feat, right? I, I've watched Georgia State get dismantled by Wyoming before. So I'm not going to, you know, there are no slouch to have to go and play them in their own place. So I do like their non-conference schedule for that reason is I don't feel like it's too daunting. And they get three out of the four games at home as well. Uh, they get Northern Colorado at home. Air Force at home, and obviously they have to go at Illinois. But once again, who knows what Illinois is going to look like first game of the season. Obviously, we'll have to talk about them in a later episode. But Illinois, some highs last year, but also some really, really low lows. Uh, when you look at them from a recruiting standpoint, funny enough, in this past year's class, they signed their highest-ranked kid ever, uh, Deshaun Woods, uh, interior offensive lineman, 91 overall, 91 rated. Uh, that's a that's a right around a four. That's a mid-level four-star. He's the highest-rated kid ever. Uh, the next highest kid was John Hawk back in 2002. To give an idea of how long it's been since they were able to attract a, a four-star uh, period uh, in program history. So maybe that's an indication of what you know Bowl is able to do on the uh, trans, or on the recruiting trail. He is a kid out of Omaha, Nebraska, as well. So to get him out of that state. Pretty impressive as well. Uh, you know, they so I think you know, maybe they're going in the right direction as far as what they're doing from their uh recruiting standpoint. If you're able to bring a kid like that in from an opposing state, uh, so that's really nice. I really love Ja'Cory Hawkins, uh, the cornerback from Ole Miss, who they brought in, uh, brought through, through in the transfer portal as well. So I think they're doing the right things, and I'm willing to go over that because of what I said and what Nick said. I think when you play that slow, like I, we've talked about with Army, like we've talked about at times with even Navy. You make other teams be perfect, and if they aren't perfect and you're clicking on all cylinders, it could be a very, very long afternoon slash night for you. Um, so that's why I'd like them to go over. I also think that the games that they have away, once again, aren't too daunting either. They play at New Mexico. That's a team that we think that is going to be pretty bad this year. They play at Hawaii, not too daunting either. And once again, obviously, they have at uh, Fresno State, but that's neither here nor there. So I think that they can get through the games that they need to, win the games that they're supposed to, and if they can find a way to be 2-2 two and two at minimum after their non-conference schedule, I don't see why not. All right, let's go over to Buffalo 108 here. And for Buffalo, Mark uh, Maurice Linguist led Buffalo to a four and eight record in his first season there. They did have one possession loss games to Coastal Carolina, Western Michigan, and Northern Illinois, but lost their last four, including getting stomped fifty six to forty four by Bowling Green. Uh, their DK win total is five and a half. We have them at six and six, so this is uh, three overs in a row. Uh, Buffalo ranks low in returning production, Nick, 117th overall, 122nd on offense in particular, but they brought in a lot of new faces uh, that could spark the offense. What should we expect from the Bulls in 2022 here, Nick? So this situation is actually one where uh, playing 
CFF has been really helpful, I think, for me to kind of help formulate an opinion, at least on the offensive side of the ball for Buffalo. Uh, they certainly you know, struggled a lot on defense and, and have to replace a couple of their more talented players. So uh, that remains to be seen exactly what, you know, what, what we can expect improvement wise on that side of the ball. But offensively, Buffalo has traditionally, you know, Lance Leopold was there for a long time and, and he's kind of a, as we'll talk about a little later today, um, give the ball to your running back and, you know, eat, eat uh, up some clock and, and uh, uh, just sort of steady, consistent on the ground, ball control, all that good stuff. And for CFF purposes, you know, Buffalo running backs have been pretty uh, consistently productive. And they've certainly had some talented guys like Jared Patterson, who's playing in the NFL. Um, but, you know, even some guys that we never really heard from again uh, were, were able to put up some good numbers there uh, at, at Buffalo. And so there's been some talk of, okay, who's next in line because their top two guys are not there anymore. Dylan McDuffie transferred to Georgia Tech. Um, Kevin Marks uh, left for uh, professional football. And so, you know, is it going to be Ron Cook stepping in? There have been some you know, whispers that uh, redshirt freshman Michael Washington or A.J. Henderson might be in line and, and could be the next exciting back there. But, you know, I, I haven't necessarily heard or, or dug into specific reporting, uh, but kind of looking at how Buffalo – approach the transfer portal and for some teams you know and, and it would make sense that a mac team uh would do it this way sometimes you just take the best guy you can get right and so maybe three uh wide receivers uh two power five and, and one who's been a starter at the group of five level if they say hey yeah we'll transfer to buffalo you know if they say that great we'll take them you know even if we did want to uh lean on our running game a bit but also, you know, perhaps there was a little bit of by design going out and, and saying, even though we've got uh, Quain Williams, who is a potential all-Mac uh, caliber wide receiver, even though he's coming back, even though Giovanni Ru uh, Ruiz Navarro is coming back from missing almost all of last year with injury, maybe they said, you know what, we, we could actually start to, to transition our offense a little bit and let's get some talented receivers and let's see what, even though, uh, you know, quarterback Kyle Van Trees transferred out and ended up at Georgia Southern, let's see what Matt Myers can do. Or let's bring in Cole Snyder, a power five transfer, transfer from Rutgers, who um, has a you know really strong arm and, and sounds like it's got some people excited uh, in Buffalo that maybe he could step up and, and be uh, that, you know, starting quarterback. Maybe we're actually going to see, and, and I kind of, my hunch tells me we will, Buffalo start to open it up a little bit more, at least compared to what we were used to in the previous regime. And perhaps we didn't get a chance, you know, maybe that's what they wanted to do all along. If you dig back into uh, their, you know, offensive play caller uh, history, which is available in our stat profiles, again, another little plug for that, but we, we were able to uh, include a uh, coach's history section where you can see the the job history for each head coach, offensive coordinator and defensive coordinator. But Shane Montgomery, you know, came to Buffalo from James Madison, not exactly a, a super spread air raid thrown all over the place type 
uh, situation, but but they put up some good passing numbers there. Uh, but if you you know dig deep back in, there is a history, uh, and it's been a while. But I know Scott, you know the name Ben Roethlisberger quite well. Yeah, he's Montgomery right. was the uh, head coach at Miami of Ohio and, and ran when Roethlisberger was there, right? a pretty pass-heavy offense. And there's been a little of that sprinkled throughout his history. And that's been a long time, obviously. But, you know, that what that shows me is Montgomery uh, is willing to say, okay, we've got a, a really talented player or a group of players. Let's build our offense around that. So if if it's you know uh, if the if the roster is more uh, you know built for a uh, ground attack or or you know maybe we don't have uh, a whole lot to to you know a lot of playmakers maybe that's what we'll try to do we'll take the Wyoming approach but I I could sort of see it playing out where Buffalo says all right we brought in a really strong armed power five transfer quarterback. We brought in Justin Marshall from Louisville and uh, Booby Curry from Arizona, uh, who was a four-star coming out of high school. Cole Harity was a, a you know starter, played significant time at New Mexico State. Add that to the wide receiver talent we've got. And, you know, we don't have a lot of experience at running back. So let's open it up a little bit and, and let's uh, let's get the ball to our most talented players. So I I think this Buffalo team, which took a big step back, in the win column last year or, you know, win percentage wise, I think we're going to see a different team. So it's, it's at least on the offensive side of the ball. So it is a little bit tricky for me to figure out exactly how we should, you know, project or, or what my actual thoughts are on whether or not this is going to be a better team or not, because a lot of the things that we normally look at returning production, even roster strength for Buffalo, don't necessarily indicate that this is a team that's going to take a big step forward. And we're not expecting a big step forward, but we think that Buffalo can get back to a bowl this year. I, I, I think, you know, their best chance to do that is to, you know, change their offensive philosophy, at least from a, a play calling run pass ratio, uh, you know, way of doing things. If they do that, play to their strengths, there are a lot of winnable games, you know, Maryland and Coastal Carolina in the non-conference are tough, but they play Holy Cross and UMass and the other two. And then every Mac game, as usual, is winnable. So uh, can they get to six wins with this schedule? I think they're certainly going to have an opportunity to do that. Um, but I think the way they are going to have to go about it, you know, at least the way you know, I'm seeing things on paper and kind of trying to game it out, it, it's going to have to be because they decided that they're going to lean into, uh, you know, a, a more pass heavy approach on offense. Xavier, your thoughts here. Do you think they can uh, get to this one total or are you out? Yeah, I actually love what they did on the transfer portal this year. Uh, you know, you talked about the lack of returning production, but I, I don't know if it'll mean as much when you bring in the type of talent that they brought in this year. Uh, also, we like we said, the MAC is very volatile. So, in the event that all of a sudden Buffalo wins six games, would be all be too surprised with how you know up and down the MAC has been. Not really. Uh, you know, Nick hit on the receivers that they brought in, but they brought in a slew of P five corners. Uh, you know, uh, and more importantly, from the school, you know, Caleb Alford coming from Notre Dame, Elijah Blaze coming from Florida. Uh, you know, this isn't a P five, but it, it, you know, they made the playoff last year. Uh, Essa Jarman from uh, Cincinnati. So, you know, on top of Solomon Brown coming from Minnesota. So they brought in a ton 
uh, of back end talent uh, to compete with that, you know, with, with the receivers that they brought in uh, from the P5 as well. So I love what they were able to do. Uh, these guys should be, you know, at the very least competing for the starting job. They even brought in a safety from Boston College um, and uh, Jamin Muse. So, like, I really love what they did to to make up for a lot of the talent in which they lost last year. They, you know, you look at their schedule at Maryland, Holy Cross. They do get Coastal Carolina away this year, which isn't a bona fide loss without us knowing what their quarterback situation is going to look like. Also, on top of that, they lost a ton of talent themselves last year. So we're going to be, you know, waiting and see what even Coastal Carolina looks like this year. Uh, so I, I'm not, you know, too down on their non-conference schedule as well. And they have at UMass, which we all know what UMass is like. Uh, so I, I really like the idea that Buffalo could get to that sixth win total because of how volatile that conference has been. Um, a quick aside for their recruiting, just to hop back into it just a little bit. I was just mentioning how um, our previous school had their number one ranked kid all time. Buffalo has two of their top three all time, second and third in this in this past year's class uh, with Devin Grant and Jay Oliver. So some of these teams are starting to really learn, you know, uh, get their footing in the recruiting space. Uh, so I like what they're doing. Buffalo also had the 30th ranked transfer rating in all of college football, which just tells you the quality that they brought into, a, you know, to that school. Uh, so they're not too much of a drop off of what Lance Leopold was able to do when he was there. So I really like what Buffalo's doing. And I would not be surprised in the slightest if they won six games uh, next year. Uh, the team I think I'm the most excited about, at least to talk about today, is James <laughs> Madison, who we yeah. have at 107. Obviously, they're new uh, both to uh, the FBS and the Sun Belt here. They went 12 and two last season. Their only losses were to Villanova by a point in North Dakota State in the semifinals of the FCS playoffs last year. Their DK win total is six and a half. Uh, they only have 11 games, too. It's something important. They're not bowl eligible in their first year in FBS. Um, so our projection is five and six, which would be our first team under the win total here. And, you know, uh, these teams, most of the times, with these teams in the triple digits, we're going to be over because the bar is set so low on them. It'll start, you know, being more uh, half overs, half unders as we move up, and then unders a lot. The, yeah, yeah. The top, you know, the bar is set so high. <laughs> it makes sense. Yeah, it, it makes sense. But as the newest FBS program, JMU won't be eligible to play. Like I said, they only have the 11 games, but, um, I mean, they were a powerhouse in the FCS, Nick. So how is that going to transition? And, I mean, are, is there a possibility we could be low on them because they have had this track record, but, you know, they haven't played this level of competition either. It's hard to, it's hard to judge. It is. And, and I think James Madison is going to be the most difficult team to project uh, the way that we calculate things. Again, you know, I, I say it, I feel like every week probably, but um, the first thing we do is look at that talent projection. And for that, we use the 247 composite rating. Um, it's not perfect, but it's a pretty good starting point. And, you know, they've got some really smart folks at, at 247 Sports that put a lot of work into it. And, and it, it takes a little off our plate to uh, use that as a starting point and then fold in things like experience and production. But James Madison, despite, you know, playing at a national championship contending level uh, consistently, they were an FCS school. So they are not recruiting FBS 
talent, at least the way that um, it's calculated by 247 Sports, you know, more often than not coming out of high school. They have uh, often supplemented with transfers. And, you know, that this year is, is certainly no different. Uh, they've brought in even more transfers maybe than usual, but guys that we expect, you know, have FCS or excuse me, have FBS uh, experience and, and project to be starters like Todd Santillo, who's been a starting quarterback at Colorado State, also played at Temple earlier in his career. They brought in A.J. Davis from Pitt, uh, who had been, you know, a, a contributor uh, earlier in his career there to, to supplement. They do have their returning, you know, leading returning rusher who ran for almost a thousand yards in Latrell Palmer. But right now he's third on our projected depth chart because uh, Percy Aji obese is back from injury. And, and he had been one of the better running backs in FCS in you know, 2019. So uh, they're pretty strong there. They bring back a thousand yard receiver in Chris Thornton, who was the second leading receiver uh, on the team last year. Antoine Wells has since transferred to South Carolina, but they brought in, you know, uh, some players to, to supplement uh, Chris Thornton as well. So, you know, he, he shouldn't be just completely double and triple teamed uh, because they brought in Terrence Green Jr. from Monmouth, who was very productive uh, FCS player there. Troy Lewis didn't play at East Carolina, but he's a redshirt freshman, 6'3", 200 pounds, you know, three-star guy coming out of high school. So uh, on paper, very talented. Um, and they brought in some transfers on the offensive line, which on paper looks like their weakest position group. Uh, but you bring in Isaac Wosuapaya from Coastal Carolina, Andrew Adair from Liberty to, to supplement a couple of starters returning. And I think the offense has actually got a chance to be pretty good. The defense, I'm a little worried about. The defensive line looks pretty good. They had two uh, really, really productive pass rushers. Uh, Isaac Ukwu uh, is back from last year, but Bryce Carter is out of eligibility. He actually you know, went back and, and built the whole FBS team profile for James Madison this year. And Bryce Carter ended up you know, he was so productive. He was also a transfer from a power five school. So that helped, but he ended his career as a 100 rated player, as a max rated player. So they're losing him. That's a big loss. Uh, Ukwu was almost, you know, their, their stat sheets looked very, very similar last year, very productive player. Uh, but they also bring back Mikhail Kamara, who was, you know, an all conference caliber player in the shortened 2022 season, spring 2021 season, uh, who missed all of last year with an injury. So, you know, up front, I think they're going to be decent on the back end corner. Uh, Chris Chukwune, uh, Kunke, my apologies for uh, butchering that, uh, was, you know, returning starter, very productive player. And they supplemented a couple of, FBS transfer, former starters um, at safety to help Jarius uh, Remanek from Arkansas State and Dion Jones from Boston College. So, you know, the, the starters in the secondary look pretty good. Jordan Swin was, you know, he'll step into that other corner role, um, was a, a contributor for sure. But the big loss and the, the area of concern is at linebacker. Um, they would have been probably okay if Diamante Tucker Dorsey hadn't transferred to Texas FCS all American last year at linebacker. Um, but without him coming back, everybody else is, is moved on. So that linebacker core 
there's there's some questions. I mean, they're the most uh, experienced player has played 158 snaps combined over the last two years. That's Mateo Jackson. So uh, I'm, I'm a little bit concerned just because like the James Madison roster as a whole, especially if you look beyond guys who, you know, were starters on one of the best FCF teams in the country last year or transferred in the last few months from uh, an FBS school, there's a lot of unknowns and a lot of unrated uh, and probably underrated players uh, the way we project things. So most I would, I would, you know, most people I would assume are higher on James Madison than 109. The early things I've looked at, you know, magazines and, and uh, SP Plus and, and things like that, everybody pretty much seems to be higher than 109. And I understand that. We have a different way of kind of setting that baseline uh, talent rating. And, and I think that really pulls James Madison down. I think of a couple of years ago, right when, you know, Coastal Carolina broke out. We had them sort of in this range because they were an early FBS school and we were just way too low. I fear we're a little like that with James Madison. However, transitioning to FBS, it's a step up in competition week in and week out. Um, so it, it will be tougher. The Sun Belt is, you know, significantly, uh, I think, more difficult than the CAA was last year for uh, James Madison. You know, they have to play App State. They have to play Georgia State, Coastal Carolina. Um, consistently, you guys hear that? <laughs> yeah. Did you hear that? Sorry, yeah. that was a draft ending on Fantrax. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, Marshall, new conference mate consistent bowl team and, and conference title contender in conference USA old dominion, who we'll talk about in a second, went to a bowl game last year. So uh, the, the schedule, the, the week to week, um, you know, opponent is going to be tougher. So on the one hand, I'm, I'm kind of glad we're on the under for James Madison. I, I feel like they might be, maybe there's some assumptions out there that a team that was playing at, the, at an FCS national championship contending level is just going to, you know, break in and, and be a winner uh, regardless. I think it's going to be, you know, might be a little bit of a transition, uh, especially if some of those weak spots on the roster really do turn out to be uh, weak spots like that linebacker group, or, you know, if the depth just isn't, isn't quite there. Yeah. They've got some talented guys um, in some key spots, but if an injury, you know, hits the wrong position group, could end up uh, tanking things. They also, you know, Todd Santillo is, is uh, known a little bit more for his running than his passing. And James Madison has to replace, you know, over 3,500 passing yards from last year. So will the offense look the same? Chris Thornton's a great receiver, but is he going to be able to, you know, have that same type of production with a different quarterback and without Wells on the other side, uh, you know, defenses have to, to plan for both of them. So there are a lot of unknowns with James Madison, not just because they're new, but because there's some transition uh, pieces on the roster as well. But uh, I, I think I'd rather be on the under than the over, especially since I'm looking, you know, at every other team we're talking about today. And even though a lot of them are, you know, 0.1, 0.2 wins away, we're on, all the other overs. So uh, hopefully the one under we're on this week 
is is the right one to be on. So um, I don't know. Other than that, it, it's going to be – I'm going to learn a lot about James Madison this year, we'll say. <laughs> uh, Xavier, what do you think about James Madison? Do you like them to go over or under this win total? Yeah, that makes two of us, Nick, because they're going to be in the Sun Belt. So I'm going to have to learn a ton about JMU this year, uh, you know, in preparation, obviously play them later on in the year. Uh, you know, with them coming into the into the Sun Belt, I just I can't be too confident. So I'm going to go with the under here. Uh, I think six and a half is just a little too high for me. Uh, on top of that, when you look at the non-conference schedule that they do have, they do have to go play Louisville. They do, you know, and, and so that is a little bit off for me, too, especially with them only playing 12 games. You know, their non-conference games I mean a little bit more to their win total this year. Uh, so with having Louisville on the road is going to be a little bit difficult. Uh, you know, Middle Tennessee and Norfolk State to start off the year, they should go 2-0 there. Uh, we've talked about the kind of the fires that Middle Tennessee has to put out before we we, we feel any kind of confidence there. Uh, but they get all of, like, the harder teams in the Sun Belt on the road, barring their last two games. They have to go, their first, you know, Sun Belt iteration is going to App State. What a fun, you know, what a fun inauguration to come into the Sun Belt with, to go probably play the most consistent team in the Sun Belt uh, since it, in its conference history. Uh, then you go to Arkansas State with an explosive offense that you're going to have to get used to. Then right after, you head to Statesboro, where you're going to have to go play a team that is finding out its own identity at the time, and then you get Marshall for homecoming. So I, I think for them, it's going to be having to figure out everybody. Now, there will be an element of surprise because James Madison, you know, this is their first year in the Sun Belt. So people are going to have to get used to them, but they're also going to have to get used to the differing styles that exist within the Sun Belt as well. Uh, um, you know, and it doesn't get any easier when your last two games of the year, where you, you have to play Georgia State and Coastal Carolina, which probably will be two teams atop the Sun Belt East, at least in, the, in, in that top four range. So you really, I, I feel it's very difficult for me to say, yeah, this is going to be a seven win team with only 11 games uh, in their first year uh, in the Sun Belt. So, I'm not ready to put them there yet. I will say that they did hit the transfer portal and they did correctly. AJ Davis had a pit that Nick talked about. Uh, Deion Jones, a safety out of Boston College. I like both of those pickups. They're just going to have to get used and get their feet wet uh, and used to FBS football. Not everybody hits the ground running um, in, in you know in their respective situations. I even think Georgia Southern even struggled a little bit when they moved out of the CAA uh, a couple of years. You know, all those years ago, I say a couple all those years ago before finally finding their footing uh, in the Sun Belt itself. So I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be reserved when it comes to James Madison. Now, I'm not going to say that they won't compete. I just don't think that there'll be a seven-win ball club. I don't think they're going to get ran over and it's going to be like, oh, they're coming to the big, bad Sun Belt. I'm not that biased. But I do mm -hmm. think at the end of the day, it's going to take a bit of an adjustment to, to learn how to play in this conference with the differing styles. And, and really, more than anything, I just think the, they're going to have to get used to playing FBS teams and the way that they're going to want to be explosive on their side of the football. So I'm going to go with the under for them. And under could still be six six wins for them. So, yeah. All right, let's go over to 106, which would be Louisiana Tech. And after years of sustained success, I can't say that uh, very well, Louisiana <laughs> Tech fell to 3-9 uh, and nine in Skip Holtz's final season. The Bulldogs suffered through a five-game losing streak. That snapped a seven-year streak of bowls. Uh, DK doesn't like them again this year. Four and a half as their win total. Uh, we have them at five and seven, which would be just over that four and a half. And they have a new head coach, Sonny Cumbie. He was the interim head coach last season at Texas Tech and inherits a program that stumbled last season after a successful stretch. Will the Bulldogs bounce back quickly, Nick? 
or does Cumbie need time to rebuild this program? I, I mean, you know, hopefully, uh, because we're on the over and <laughs> don't want to get, you know, <laughs> don't want it to be a complete bloodbath. Uh, well, we're on the over, but we still, we aren't putting them back in a bowl. That's so. true. That's true. But I, I tend to think that they are closer to a bounce back candidate than a complete rebuild. And a lot of it, you know, as is the case for, maybe every uh, college football team, a lot of it depends on what sort of quarterback play they get. And that is uh, an area where I'm a little bit concerned. Uh, Matthew Downing transfer from uh, TCU. So, you know, has, because uh, Cumbie was at, at TCU before he was at uh, Texas Tech. So there's a little bit of a history there. Hopefully that helps Downing, uh, you know, start off on a, a, a nice footing it seems he's got the inside track to that starting job another guy who could be in the mix parker mcneil actually was at texas tech last year with sunny Cumbie, so he should know the offense pretty well because Cumbie is going to be the play caller as i understand it um former juco all-american so you know perhaps he has a little bit more upside at least potentially than matthew downing uh but also i've i've heard some good things about a true freshman that they've got Landry Liddy, who, you know, ranks pretty highly actually ranked higher coming out of uh, high school than either Downing or Parker McNeil, even coming out of Juco. So um, not sure if he's going to be ready to start right away. Maybe he'll, you know, have an opportunity by the end of the year, maybe get a shot, but um, you just kind of have to hope and none of these guys have a whole lot of FBS playing experience. Uh, and you know, true freshman Liddy has none, obviously, but it, it's a, it, it's a big question mark. It seems like they've got enough to work with that. Somebody like Sonny Cumbie, who you know has a, a pretty strong track record uh, as a play caller has a background, at least in offenses that have been highly productive and that Texas tech team, you know, played really hard for him last year. So it's going to be interesting to see uh, now that he's the full-fledged head coach of his own program, what that is going to look like, because there are some potential playmakers to work with. Smoke Harris has been an all-conference USA um, performer in the past. Uh, Trey Harris, returning starter at wide receiver, Griffin Bear as well. And they also bring in Devontae Lee, uh, transfer from LSU, who, you know, big body type guy. Um, it'll be interesting to see how they use him if they, you know, want to uh, incorporate him a little bit more as sort of a tight end ish, H back ish type role. I've, I've seen some things that, that could, uh, you know, make me think that that is a possibility. I was really high on Keon Henry Brooks as a running back at Vanderbilt. And when he transferred to Louisiana Tech, I was a bit surprised he didn't have a bigger impact there last year. So, you know, with the new coaching staff, will he uh, give Greg Garner a, a run for that top spot of the, on the depth chart? Uh, Henry Brooks was somebody who caught the ball really well coming out of the backfield. So in my mind, you know, that seems like a, a pretty good fit for what Sonny Cumbie probably wants to do on offense. And they bring in, you know, the whole, uh, excuse me, they bring back uh, both starters on the left side of the offensive line, plus their starting center and highest rated um, offensive lineman last year, Abraham Delphin. They added a former starter to probably slot into the other guard in Isaac Ellis, 
who was a transfer from Memphis. So, you know, that seems like it should be a pretty strong unit. And defensively, they have all of their, you know, four starters coming back on the defensive line. Tyler Grubbs at linebacker was a freshman All-American a couple of years ago, All-Conference USA type uh, player at linebacker. B.J. Williamson, highly productive, another all-conference caliber player. Uh, plus, he's you know one of three returning starters back there. So it's, it's an experienced group. Certainly last year, they took a step back. They ranked 102nd in overall team performance, 91st on offense, 101st on defense. Uh, and the roster, you know, it, it's not the uh, – it's a little on the low side, 109th in overall roster strength, including 117th on offense and a big part of that is because none of those quarterbacks really rank particularly high but transitioning back to you know why why are they a bounce back candidate i think a big part of it is conference usa is uh looks a lot different this year and we've said about the mac i i said it even earlier today that every game in the mac is winnable i i'm pretty you know i'm feeling kind of like every game in conference usa is winnable. Um, UTSA, you know, defending champ, we're still pretty high on them. Think that, that that they are the strongest team probably coming into this year. UAB has been highly successful, but they just had a head coaching change kind of unexpectedly. Uh, and those two are, are two of the final three games on the schedule. You get to, um, you know, start conference play with some, you know, UTEP, a team that we're talking about today, Rice, a team that we talked about earlier, FIU, a team we talked about earlier, Middle Tennessee we've already talked about. So, you know, Louisiana Tech is going to have, at at the very least, very similar talent on hand uh, as soon as they start conference play. You get a win over Stephen F. Austin in week two and, you know, uh, maybe burying the lead a little bit, but uh, we actually have Louisiana Tech as – less than well i should say a single digit underdog at missouri in week one so that's a game that could be you know that that could really start your coaching tenure off on, that's on interesting so that you know that seems a little funny we're a little lower on missouri i think than than uh maybe some other folks out there but you know that's not a guaranteed loss i i should say uh we give louisiana tech a 31 percent chance to win that game so there's, you know, it's not an automatic L. So if if they get through the non-conference at one and three, which is certainly possible uh, with losses to Missouri, Clemson, and South Alabama, you know, that, that would be understandable. If they get through three and one, which probably not, you know, nearly as uh, likely, but that game against South Alabama, probably a coin flip. You're pretty close to an automatic win against Stephen F. Austin. Um and then that Missouri game could be interesting. So, you know, I, I could I could talk myself into Louisiana Tech not just bouncing back and, and you know, being a, uh, a, a team that's competitive in Conference USA. I could talk myself into if things, you know, click and, and they take a step forward a little bit from an underachieving team last year, uh, and then maybe – you know, the, the new coaching staff and, and Cumbie coming in gives that offense a jolt and maybe better uses some of the players um, that are back, some of those playmakers. I could talk myself into Louisiana Tech at least being in the mix, you know, for bowl eligibility and maybe even uh, being a, a 
contender. Probably, you know, a lot of things would have to go right for them and, and probably a few wrong for teams like UAB and UTSA, but it wouldn't shock me if Louisiana Tech is in the Conference USA title conversation uh, in November. So I, I think they've got a chance to bounce back. Xavier, what do you think? Uh, do you think uh, Louisiana Tech hits this total? Do you think that uh, it's going to take a little time to rebuild? Uh, what are your thoughts? I think Nick was starting to talk himself a little bit too much there. I think Nick, <laughs> I think Nick found himself in a pocket, and he was like, I'm going for it. Um, but, no, I, I think this team can absolutely hit. I will players. say, sorry. No, no, you're fine. We have consistently been – too high on Louisiana Tech the last two years. So uh, <laughs> do keep that in mind. I probably should have, you know, read with that. One. Yeah. Maybe I talk myself into Louisiana Tech a little too much too often, but sorry. Go ahead. No, but I, I don't blame you because this is a team, this is an or a, you know, a school that for the last couple of years, over the last, you know, has been a mainstay, of, I feel like a top conference USA in some way, shape, or form. Uh, so I feel like this year I'm not going to go bullish on them and say, yeah, this is a team that can compete um, this is going to be a team that maybe you know finds its way into the championship game at the end of the year. I do think their non-conference schedule is a little bit harder than uh, what, what what maybe we were alluding to. Uh, I do think that you know at Missouri it's going to be a little bit harder of a test. Now, once again, you know what's going to be so funny is if they beat Missouri, most SEC fans will just see Louisiana Tech and go, "That makes sense." Uh, like they won't do any kind of other homework; they'll just see the name and be like, "Then isn't that the same team that gave Johnny Manziel a run for his money?" Yep, that makes sense. So, yeah, I, I think that, you know, a lot of SEC fans would be have no problems or, or not be even, you know, surprised in the slightest if they were to beat Missouri in the first week of the year. I just don't see it happening myself. Uh, I see them being Stephen F. Austin. But other than that, I think, you know, and South Alabama is probably more of a toss up. But I'm going to lean to South Alabama because it is in Mobile. Uh, I just feel like best case scenario, they end up two and two out of their non-conference. Worst case, they end up one and three and, and they're having to climb up their, you know, a mountain in, in, in uh, conference play. In conference play, though, I think the stretch that means the most to me is that Rice to UTSA stretch well, from October 22nd to November 12th. If they can beat Rice, FIU, and Middle Tennessee, they will have a really good chance of matching that five-win total and possibly going over. Um, in that time frame, you know, you get past UTEP and North Texas, the biggest, the biggest thing for me is they don't have a bye week in that time frame. So they're playing all these teams back-to-back-to-back which could lead to some fatigue at the end of the year. And you do have to play UAB. I don't want to go into UAB having to win that game to possibly get to a bowl. Uh, I would rather have already solidified that uh, beforehand. So that stretch for me, starting around October 22nd, when they play Rice, maybe even October 15th, when they play at North Texas, to right before they play UTSA, uh, November 12th, they have to be almost perfect for them to go above the, the, you know, the, the win total that's set for them. Louisiana Tech on the recruiting trail, it's pretty much like the school that gets all of the three-star Texas and Louisiana players that don't go like to LSU, you know, Texas, Texas Tech, or any of those schools. They do a really solid job of, you know, not trying to be too prideful and being and taking those kids and developing them. They do a really solid job in Mississippi as well. Uh, th- this year, they only recruited in states, Louisiana, Texas, and Mississippi. Um, and actually one from Iowa, which I-, I think might be, you know, rather new for them. So I like what they do. I love that they go in and hit the transfer portal pretty hard uh, to get three guys from Illinois. I wonder if they like conspired together to all go to Louisiana Tech. That's got to <laughs> be like that's got to be something that they talked about in the dorm room. Like, hey guys, where are you going? Sure, Louisiana they can Tech. It happened like in one week. It had. To yeah. Be. yeah. And two of them are and two of them are outside linebackers. So they definitely were like, hey, hey, are you going? 
And they were like, hey, Joriel, you want to come with us? <laughs> like, you know, we're going over to Louisiana Tech, baby. You want to come with us? Uh, so, you know, I, I just found that funny. But they do hit the, uh, the transfer portal pretty hard. And it goes for a lot of P5 schools, LSU, Texas, uh, Arizona, Boston College, TCU is on here as well. So I, I like what they've been able to do in the transfer portal to supplement what they already have. Uh, and it's funny. Their transfer rating and their overall rank is actually – almost identical 92nd overall ranking transfer rating was at 93. So I think Louisiana tech will win five games. I'm just not bullish enough to go over and say they're going to be six, seven, or even more. The next squad up here is one Oh five Nevada at one Oh five. They challenged for the mountain West, uh, West division title, but soft suffered losses to Fresno state, San Diego state and the air force. Those three teams, they lost by a combined six points. Uh, Mike Norvell left for Colorado State before the bowl loss, dropping the Wolfpack to eight and five. Their DK one total is five. We have them at six and a six, so we are over that five. But Nick, when you first saw Nevada without Jay Norvell, Carson Strong, Romeo Dubs, Cole Turner, and everybody else, uh, they got stomped 52 to 24 to Western Michigan in the quick lane bowl. Uh, is that what we're expecting, I mean, obviously you lose that much, you're going to move down, but is it going to be that bad the whole year? I, again, uh, I, I hope not <laughs> because uh, we are higher on Nevada, uh, at least projections wise, not necessarily my opinion, uh, but than most. I mean, they are at the extreme, extreme end, low end uh, in returning production, both sides of the football, 131st on offense, 130th on defense. And I mean, we saw what the gutted roster looked like at the end of the year. Um, and it wasn't, you know, wasn't pretty. Uh, they have added some transfers to kind of, you know, give them a little bit of uh, life, a little bit of talent coming in. Uh, a, a really, really interesting one that could, you know, be a, a complete program changer maybe is at the quarterback position. Shane Ellingsworth was one of the higher rated quarterbacks that Mike Gundy ever had at Oklahoma state. He has transferred into Nevada and got a little bit maybe of a, a chance to win the job because Nate Cox ran into some legal trouble uh, in you know the late spring, early summer. So if Illingworth, who at least on paper is the more talented guy, and interestingly enough, at 6'5", 226 is the uh, smaller of the two, because if anybody watched that quick lane bowl, you heard 6'8", quarterback Nate Cox about 40 times, and you'll hear it any other time that he's going to be uh, on the, the field uh, in, in the year to come. But Ellingworth, I mean, that's a prototypical you know NFL body, came in as a almost a 93-rated player coming out of high school, so... Uh, you know, well into that four-star range, a uh, talented guy. And, and if you get that quarterback position right, then you give yourself a chance. I do think, uh, talking, you know, flipping things from what uh, our discussion about Buffalo, how I think that, that they probably should and will turn to the passing game a bit more, I think Nevada would be smart to, especially if there's a, a bit of a, you know, bumpy quarterback situation at the, the early part of the year, lean on the running game. Toa Tawa came back for his extra year of eligibility, as did Devontae Lee. Uh, you know, 
both of them 220 plus pounds. Uh, Tala has been really productive, not just running, but as a receiver as well. He's actually their uh, leading returning receiver, only you know 290 something uh, yards, but had over 30 catches last year, and is somebody that I think you can really you know, lean on, be a heavy workload type guy, but also. Lee is there as well, who has been, uh, you know, has played a lot over the last couple of years, gives them a really, really solid one-two punch at the running back position. The receiving core is completely different. I mean, Jamal Bell is the the top returner there, um, and he played 122 snaps last year. He's known more as a return man. Uh, But right now, because the, you know, other than transfers coming in, uh, he's the top guy on the depth chart, he's basically all there is left of, of uh, guys who played for Nevada last year. BJ Castile is a transfer coming in from Power Five uh, program, has an opportunity to you know get a lot of playing time and, and maybe turn that into a pretty productive um, you know season potentially. But a lot of unknowns, a lot of new faces, and hardly any production uh, coming back. The offensive line is similarly. Uh, I mean, every position group basically was decimated. The offensive line, there's one returning starter. The only thing is that returning starter, you know, if you're going to pick one, it, it's Aaron Frost, who is coming back again for an extra year of eligibility, which is a little bit surprising because he's been an all-conference caliber player. And I've seen some really, you know, I've seen some NFL draft folks uh, get pretty excited about Aaron Frost. So it seems like he, you know, could have had a, a, a pro career waiting for him um had he decided to go but you know decided to come back the defensive line is very similar dom peterson has been one of the most productive defensive linemen in college football uh the last three years and he decided to come back for his extra year of eligibility i mean you know at at six feet listed at six feet so maybe under you know might not uh quite be the the uh pro uh, you know, prototype that you're that you're looking at, but he's 315 pounds and he moves and just racks up, you know, pressures and sacks, tackles for loss. I mean, the guy's everywhere, and he's back. But that's that's about it. Uh, Christopher Love played over 400 snaps, but hasn't really been a, a starter. And then a lot of you know transfers coming in and not necessarily uh, high ranking transfers. Uh, their new head coach Ken Wilson came from Oregon. Brought with him a lot of walk-ons from Oregon who got scholarships at Nevada. So, you know, we've talked about a lot of teams filling holes with Transfer Portal and even increasing their, you know, roster strength numbers because of it, bringing in Power 5 guys. Nevada Bruins, Power 5 guys, but most of them were, you know, underrated, unrated, uh, unranked type players. So not exactly what you probably would be hoping for, not necessarily what you would uh, do in a perfect world if you're trying to rebuild a roster that just was completely decimated by guys leaving for the NFL and and uh, graduating and, and all that good stuff. So, you know, the roster piece is certainly a little bit of an issue, took a big step back. They now rank 103rd in overall roster strength. Last year, Nevada was, you know, in the 50s or so. Uh, with with all those guys that you mentioned. But part of the thing, and, and this is maybe the potential Achilles heel of our stat projection model, 
And because we take into account, you know, a head coach's history, Ken Wilson's coming from Oregon. So not, you know, not a national championship contending program the last couple of years, but a solid power five program, consistent top 25 type program. So Nevada's getting a little bit of credit for, you know, his history. They're also getting a little credit for what Nevada did last year, even though this is a completely different team. Uh, Jay Norvell had them, you know, had built this program into a division title contender, as you mentioned. And and so uh, for this particular way of, you know, weighted averages where the the most recent year means the most gets weighed the most, uh, you're not going to see a major drop off in that particular style of, of projection that we uh, have have done here. Also, offensive play caller Derek Sage from UCLA and defensive play caller kind of out of, of uh, you know, unexpected, I guess, by most from NAIA Ottawa University, which, again, in the stats model, what are we going to do with that? We just have to completely, you know, not even try to count it because it's not even the same. So the, the coaching transition is a little tricky. The roster, extreme roster turnover is a little tricky. We do fold in, you know, returning production a little bit uh, into those prism ratings. But the, you know, stats, what we expect uh, based on recent results, the information we have on hand, you know, gives Nevada probably a little more credit than this roster uh, should get. So it's tricky. They're going to be they're going to be a difficult team for us to project. We're going to be too high, probably, or, or at least, you know, higher than most on Nevada. I mean, 105. I think there are a lot of folks who think that Nevada's maybe one of the bottom 10, 15 teams in the country. And, and I can I can see, uh, you know, scenarios play out that way. But perhaps, you know, maybe maybe uh, maybe it's too too much of a negative expectation at least maybe that's my hopeful thinking uh knowing that, that we're a little higher on them than most but perhaps we won't see that huge drop off maybe the fact that your best offensive lineman and your best defensive lineman are back maybe that helps you rebuild those units a little bit easier maybe the fact that you have an all-conference caliber running back who wasn't the you know the focus of the offense the last couple of years plus another guy behind him who might be your second best offensive player Maybe you lean on those guys, shorten games, you know, in a way that you didn't do. Again, take that Wyoming model of, of doing things. So uh, I can talk my way into being at least hopeful, if not optimistic. Uh, but this being a completely different Nevada team, I certainly don't see them, you know, as a conference uh, or even division title contender this year. And it is possible. New head coach, complete roster turnover and not a huge influx of talent either through, you know, high school or, or the transfer portal. There is certainly a, a real possibility that this could be a team that goes from eight wins to eight, nine, 10 losses. Xavier, your thoughts on Nevada. I mean, you know, Nick 
like we said, maybe could talk his way into circles on, on Nevada. You can squint and see the good. You can squint and see the bad uh, on both sides. What do you, when you squint, what do you see? You see the good or the bad here? I'm seeing bad. I'm not yeah. seeing all that great, to be perfectly honest with you. It, it just, it's just, for me, there's too many ifs there, right? Now, what I will say is this. Their non-conference schedule is such is such a cakewalk. They might be able to squeeze out three wins in it, to be perfectly honest. Now, do I see them getting in anywhere near five? No. Uh, I think that might be the only three wins they have of the year. They might scratch out another one in there, but I just don't see it happening consistently. At New Mexico State should be a win. At, UWI, at UIW should be a win. Texas State actually might be a little bit more, you know, might be closer than we probably expect. Um, you know, and then at Hawaii might be the only four games that I think they have a genuine opportunity to win. Everything else is probably going to be, you know, a, a loss for them. And I just don't see them putting together enough enough consistency next year to win. I mean, you, look, you talked about the roster turnover. And, yes, they hit the transfer portal, but they did an okay job. You know, it wasn't amazing. They had 116th rating uh, for uh, their transfer rating this year, 122nd overall. Um, you know, when you they, when you talk about who they brought in this year, for the most part, it was they brought in four three stars or five three stars, excuse me, and the rest of them were two stars. So they're gonna need development. It just not this year. Like it just feels like they're gonna have to hit a reset button for at least a season before we even get to them talking to them about a bowl game again, right? If they were to do that, I would be. I would be super surprised to be perfectly honest with you. Uh, so yeah, I'm gonna go with the uh, I'm gonna go with the under. Uh, I'm pretty confident in going with the under as well uh, for Nevada. Uh, let's go to 104 here, and that would be South Alabama. They opened up 3-0 under Kane Womack. They flirted with bowl eligibility before losing their last four games too by a single possession. A lot of close games there um, to finish five and seven in his first season. Uh, five and a half is the DK total, Nick. We have them at six and a six, so over five and a half. As we've said before, the Sun Belt West is wide open this year. Can you make the case? Can you squint and look and see the Jaguars, you know, possibly uh, becoming a division champ, make it th- making it to the conference championship game here? Or is this kind of going to be the re- regular same old South Alabama Jags we're used to? I, I think they've got a real shot. I think they could win the Sun Belt West. Um, a big reason for that, I mean, you mentioned Louisiana has been kind of the, the king of that division the last few years. And even though they have to go to Lafayette to play the game, uh, South Alabama opens Sunbelt play at Louisiana, who has a new head coach, first time head coach, even though he's you know being promoted there, but got a lot, a lot of roster turnover. And I think if you want uh, or, you know, give your, yourself the best chance of knocking off Louisiana, maybe it's early on. So uh, I, I think that sets up pretty well for them. And the draw from the East is manageable, right? I mean, you know, they play uh, Troy, who's in the East now, right? Uh, Georgia Southern, a little bit of a program in transition. They're completely changing their way of doing things on offense. Um, and then Old Dominion, who we'll be talking about here shortly. So every crossover game is winnable. And your toughest, uh, you know, division play, uh, game in division play, even though it's on the road, is, uh, I think, pretty close to ideally situated on the schedule. So I think that certainly sets up well for Alabama, uh, South Alabama. I think their non-conference 
game, uh, excuse me, non-conference slate, uh, very manageable, even though, you know, the, the games against Central Michigan and Louisiana Tech are not automatic wins, but uh, you certainly have a chance to win those games. You, you could certainly um, see South Alabama starting non-conference play going into that game against Louisiana with a three and one record. Um, at, at worst, I think, you know, two and two is, is what the expectation should be. And then at that point, you, you put up a 500 record in conference when, in my estimation, you have the second best team uh, in the division. South Alabama should go to a bowl game. Um, the quarterback situation is going to be interesting. Desmond, Desmond Prater, excuse me, Desmond Trotter was a starter two years ago. Kane Womack came in as the head coach last year. Trotter did not win the job, brought in a transfer uh, to beat him out and Jake Bentley. There's another transfer in this year, Carter Bradley, who had some starting experience at Toledo. So Trotter will be, you know, challenged again. I think Trotter showed enough good things two years ago uh, where, I mean, you know, and, and certainly was working with an NFL receiver that he won't have available this year in uh, Jalen Tolbert, but, you know, showed a big arm at times, showed a lot of athleticism at times, uh, can hurt you on the ground. And I, I think if he's the guy they're going to be just fine. If Carter Bradley comes in and beats him out, you have a chance maybe to be even better because uh, if you're able to beat a, a former starter, you know, in theory, you, you've gotten better at that position. Running back, they bring, you know, Terry and Avery back, who was technically the starter last year, even though Kareem Walker uh, you know, started the season and, and ended up with some uh, injuries costing him time. But they bring in LaDainian Webb, former uh, Florida State, uh, running back and, and he's signed out of junior college. He is a bit banged up right now. I think there's a little bit of a question as to whether or not he'll be ready for the start of the season, but that seems like a position of strength, even without Jalen Tolbert, they do have Jalen Wayne back who I think has, you know, he's played a lot and, and uh, certainly benefited from having Tolbert on the other side of, you know, that uh, formation offensively. Can he be the number one guy? Be interesting to see. They were able to bring Alan Daly Jr. back, who transferred in from Kentucky last year and then left the team early in the season. Uh, but he's back, seems to be in good graces. The tie-in position, I think, is pretty strong, should be one of the better units, uh, you know, position groups that they've got. But Lincoln Sefsick back uh, at tight end and Brandon Crum, pretty solid number two there. And then there's been some, you know, intriguing things about Colin Lacey, a guy who is on the smaller side, kind of that you know, slot who you can get the ball in a variety of ways, um, be a playmaker. Uh, it, it'll be interesting to see what he can do. Looks like probably as a full-time starter. The offensive line is very experienced. They bring in three starters, uh, you know, bring three starters back, have multiple guys who have been starters in the past, and then added a trio of transfers into the mix as well. And then defensively, Kane Womack, you know, as a defensive-minded head coach, uh, had a big impact in year one and has now an experienced uh, group, including you know his entire starting uh, defensive line, two all-sunbelt caliber defensive backs, and then uh, you know A.J. DeSager uh, at linebacker, solid guy to build around returner. Plus, they really, really hit the transfer portal hard as well to add depth and possibly, you know, handful of starters. But 
Kane Womack, you know, went to the the well at Indiana. He was uh, Indiana's defensive coordinator when he got hired. Three uh, transfers are from Indiana, and then everybody else basically is you know from the SEC. So they're bringing in transfers from Auburn, from uh, Ole Miss, Kentucky. Uh, you know, I guess Oklahoma is not technically the SEC yet, but uh, there's there's a lot of at least on paper, at least you know, uh, coming out of high school guys who are talented. So this roster strength number, this talent on hand for South Alabama is moving, you know, moving up. They've consistently been in the triple digits in our history and in their roster strength, and they, you know, finally snuck into that double digit territory, ninety eighth uh roster overall so if if that unit can you know build upon uh, uh the defensive numbers that they put up last year where they were 35th in defensive team performance so a really really solid unit i mean we're talking you know top 50 uh basically in every major category that we look at uh 52nd in yards for play allowed 50 uh, fourth in points per drive, and then it gets better. 43rd in yards per pass attempt, 24th success rate, 35th, uh, excuse me, 31st in EPA per play allowed. So they were statistically a really strong team last year. They are quite experienced and getting a little more talented on that side of the ball as well. If you get some good quarterback play, get a, a playmaker or two to step up, uh, I absolutely think that this is a team that we will see in a bowl game and could, you know, run that win total up to eight, nine. I mean, there's a lot of winnable games on that schedule. Savvy, your thoughts. Do you, do you think, uh, do you think South Alabama is going to be competitive this year? Absolutely. I love South Alabama. And this is why earlier when we were talking, I was like, there's just no way that I just feel like South Alabama was just going to be a part of the, the non-conference schedule that they won, that, that Louisiana tech was going to be able to win. Cause I love what, you know, South Alabama is doing. Like I said, like Nick said, towards the end of the year, this was a team that was able to compete with some of the best in the Sun Belt. And this year, some of the best lost a ton of talent. Excuse me, lost a ton of talent. So I'm excited to see what South Alabama is able to do. Uh, when you look at their schedule, it's fairly easy. I won't say easy, but it's, it's uh, competitive. They're allowed, you know, there's not very many gauntlets on their schedule. They get Louisiana really early in the year at Louisiana. Then after that, it's really just making sure that you beat the, you know, the middle of the, the Sun Belt. You beat your Troy at home. You beat Arkansas State on the road. Those are the games you're going to have to handle. And obviously, going into Southern Miss and beating them at home is it will be no me, you know, will be no easy feat. But you're going to have to be able to do that. I think South Alabama is a team next year that genuinely could be around the eight win mark, nine win mark, which might very well win the uh, the Sun Belt West next year. As like I said, and like Nick said, Louisiana may not be that team. Uh, as they've been in the past. So I really love what South Alabama could do next year. I'm bullish on them. Five and a half for me is an easy bet to go over. I think this is an easily a, a, a bowl team. You know, bare minimum, this is an easy six-win team. You look at their non-conference as well, Nickel State uh, at Central Michigan may be a win for them as well. Uh, at UCLA and in Louisiana Tech, they should bare minimum go two and two in that situation, maybe even three and one. And then like, like we, I've talked about, once they get in the Sun Belt play, they should be able to handle business uh, and at the very least get to six wins this year. So I'm bullish on them. I like them a lot. I think they'll hit the ground running. And, you know, they also helped supplement themselves in uh, the transfer portal this year, finishing with a 64 rating uh, in the Sun Belt – or, excuse me, in transfer rating this year. So I really like – I love Sun Belt uh, – Sun Belt. I love South Alabama, and I think that they're going to absolutely get over that five-and-a-half win total. 
Uh, we go to 103 here, another Sunbelt team, a new Sunbelt team, Old Dominion. Uh, last season started one and six, understandably, after not playing in 2020 at all. But they won five straight to become bowl eligible under head coach Ricky Ronnie. Four and a half is their uh, total. Five by DK, five and seven is what we have them for. So we have them over that four and a half. And Nick, you know, finishing is one of the hottest teams in the country. Also ranking very high in returning production, 15th, uh, including number two on offense. Does the Sun Belt help or hurt this team? Uh, because this is a hot team last year, but going to a completely new conference with new opponents and all that good stuff. Uh, could make it weird. What what do we think about Old Dominion? My gut tells me that the move to the Sun Belt actually is going to hurt Old Dominion a little bit. Um, you know, talk talk myself into it being helpful for Southern Miss uh, last week when when we were talking. And I don't know. I part of me I I don't know how much of that. You know, which Old Dominion team last year was the real Old Dominion team? You know, the, the early part of the year, first you know, two out of three games to start, it looked like they might be one of the worst teams in college football. Then they got more competitive and, and lost close. And, you know, that that first half schedule looks a little better uh, maybe than it did because, you know, we weren't sure UTEP, uh, excuse me, UTEP was going to be a bowl team at that point. You know, Western Kentucky took them a little while to get going. weren't sure that they were going to uh, be as good as they were by the end of the year. So those losses look a little better now than they did at the time. But they got blown out by Wake Forest, blown out by Liberty, uh, lost to a Buffalo team, which actually ended up not, you know, being a, a very good team. But they hanged, you know, hung tough with Marshall, lost that game in overtime. And started to, you know, after the bye week, really kind of turn it around. But the schedule, I mean, it's like two completely different schedules. Louisiana Tech was uh, obviously, you know, a team that we've already talked about. They had fallen far. FIU, one of the worst teams in college football. FAU, very beatable. Middle Tennessee, very beatable. Charlotte, very beatable. Uh, And then they, in the bowl game against Tulsa, other than returning a, a kickoff for a touchdown early on, you know, that game, I don't think, was as close as even the you know 30-17 final score would indicate. In fact, they had a 0% chance to win that, uh, according to uh, College Football Data's post-game win expectancy numbers. So I, I don't know exactly uh, what to think about Old Dominion last year, whether or not it was a believable, you know, hottest team at the end of the season winning those five games or if it was just the way the schedule was stacked, you know, if, if this was a team that alternated those six wins, would we have a different thought about them? Maybe. Uh, But, you know, you mentioned they're really on the high side in returning production. It looked like, you know, they, they partly went on that run. They made a quarterback switch. DJ Mack was the starting quarterback early on in the year. Uh, They moved Hayden Wolf and, you know, whether it was that move or not, and it sounds like the there's there's you know sort of a three headed competition ongoing because they added Brendan Clark to uh, the mix, a, a transfer from Notre Dame. Doesn't sound like Hay- Hayden Wolf is guaranteed to be the starter. So 
now, you know, maybe even the coaching staff doesn't necessarily think, okay, quarterback play, uh, that change kind of sparked us and, and we finally figured it out. But they do have maybe some of the best uh, skill position players in the Sun Belt. I mean, I really like Blake Watson. Uh, running back was really, really productive last year um, at wide receiver, Ali Jennings, thousand yard guy. And Zach Kuntz is, is legitimately uh, a top five tight end in college football. I mean, really highly rated coming out of high school, uh, signed with Penn State, followed Ricky Ronnie uh, to Old Dominion. And that doesn't always work out, obviously. There are plenty of transfers that uh, fall flat, even at the group of five level, but he really blossomed. And uh, my only concern, I did rewatch that bowl game, the, the Merle Beach Bowl, um, and he was completely just taken out of the offensive game plan, just completely thrown off by Tulsa. So I wonder if, you know, he didn't have a great, uh, last game of the regular season as well. But I wonder if some of Old Dominion's opponents learned a thing or two from what Tulsa did and, and sort of how uh, Zach Kuntz was was uh, sort of schemed out of uh, the game plan because he was just completely shut out in the second half. Zero targets, zero catches, obviously, in yards. Uh, and, and you know, didn't, didn't have a whole lot before that. But it's going to be interesting to see because – he does have the talent. I mean, 6'8", 245, and has ball skills. I mean, he, he's probably an NFL tight end. And then you put Allie Jennings out there. Jordan Bly got hurt last season, but uh, Dre Bly's son was a, a pretty exciting receiver as a true freshman. Add Watson to the mix. Add a quarterback you think is probably going to be pretty good. Four out of five offensive linemen back from a unit that, you know, decent 77th in our O-line performance ratings last season. And even though, you know, they, they did lose uh, a little bit on defense, but, you know, a little bit more name recognition, perhaps uh, highly productive linebacker for them last season. Jordan Young is, uh, is off to a professional career, you know, also lost a couple of starters in the secondary, Roger Cray and Jojo Hayden, but still, you know, that unit is obviously, pretty experienced as well. So I'm, I'm a little on the fence with old dominion. Try not to think too much about last season, but you know, what could we learn and maybe apply to this year and looking at it? I mean, the, the first half of the schedule is really tough and, and doesn't necessarily have anything to do with your question of transitioning to the Sun Belt. But I think the fact that you play Virginia tech, a pretty tough East Carolina team uh, on the road, especially also Virginia, another P5 team in state. That's going to be, you know, both both of those programs I think would be fairly motivated because Old Dominion has made some noise in Virginia on the recruiting trail. So I think both Virginia Tech and Virginia, uh, you know, will have a little bit more um, to play for there than, than you might expect. Also Liberty in state and, uh, well, not a, not a, future conference. I, I was thinking Liberty will be in the conference USA coming up soon, but anyway, so uh, non-conference schedule difficult. I could see uh, old dominion potentially going 0 and four in non-conference play. And that's going to be difficult to overcome, to get back to a bowl when, you know, the Sun Belt is tougher. You're in the Eastern division, which is tougher. 
um, have to go to Coastal Carolina, uh, have to go to Georgia State, have to go to App State, and then the crossover, you know, from the Western Division, we just talked about South Alabama as legitimately a uh, division title contender, have to go to Mobile and, and play the Jags there. Also, you know, you draw Marshall. James Madison is a wild card. I mean, talk about a lot of winnable games. There are certainly winnable games for Old Dominion in, in the Sun Belt, but there are a lot of losable games as well. And in fact, I think, you know, I don't see a guaranteed win on the schedule. I'm not saying this is a, you know, 10-loss team like they were a few years ago, uh, but I think it's more likely than not, despite so much coming back and despite, you know, quote-unquote momentum they had at the end of the year, I I think this team is is set to to take a small step back in in 2022. Xavier, what are your thoughts here? Um, this is uh, an interesting team, like we said, moving conferences, all that good stuff. Um, do you think that they can keep this momentum they had at the end of last year? It's going to be hard. I hate their schedule. I absolutely agree with Nick there. Their schedule is so daunting from top to bottom. You know, you start with Virginia Tech, you end with South Alabama, the team that we just start, you know talked about possibly winning the Sun Belt West. Uh, you go to East Carolina, Arkansas State's no slouch either, and they're like right in the middle of your non-conference schedule. So like you get your first taste of the Sun Belt with what's probably going to be one of the more explosive offenses uh, in the Sun Belt. So like it's crazy. I, I really hate what they have going on. On top of that, they've got an earlier bye week, week five. And then they just go for it, like at Coastal, Georgia Southern, Georgia State, Marshall, JMU, App State, South Alabama. And it's just like really difficult for me to suggest that they're going to be able to run through that, you know, that gauntlet really without having any genuine, you know, stretch there where they play, quote unquote, cupcake teams. You don't even have a stretch there where you play the lower end of the Sunbelt East either. You go from Coastal to Georgia Southern, which might be at the bottom, but then you go straight to Georgia State the week after that in Atlanta. So. I don't really like what Old Dominion is going to have to face this year. I'd be more bullish on them if their schedule wasn't so hard. Uh, I think they'll be right around that four-win margin. I think they'll surprise a team or two in the Sun Belt and win that and win that game. But I just don't see them going to you know five or even six wins to make their first first bowl game. Uh, on the recruiting trail, they really didn't do much in the transfer portal. Uh, now they brought in three transfers, but 170 overall transfer rating, not great when you're switching conferences. You know, sometimes you feel like you need to bulk up a little bit with maybe some P5 transfers before you move into another conference. They decided not, not to do that. Their overall transfer uh, rating was 120th, not great either. It just, you know, things are just not pointing in that direction where I'm like, yeah, Old Domain's going to come into the Sun Belt and take everything, you know, uh, and take people by surprise. I'm just not, you know, sure that's the case. And, and like what Nick alluded to, what's the real ODU at this point? Do we know? Is it the 6-0 and bunch at the end of last year or is the, you know, the 1-6 bunch? Or, sorry, 5-0 and bunch at the end of last year or the 1-6 bunch that started the year off? We don't really know until this year. Uh, so I'm, I'll, you know, be waiting to see what that looks like. You know, like I said, if they go in and beat East Carolina and, you know, who knows, upset Virginia, then now we've got a whole different conversation. I just don't see that happening. So I'm much more comfortable saying that this is going to be a team that wins right around four games uh, in, in their first year in the Sun Belt. <clears throat> Next team up here is going to be UTEP at 102. UTEP shook off years of losing the breakthrough and uh, playing its first bowl game since 2014. The Miners played Fresno State close, but fell 31 to 24 to finish seven and six. 
losing five of the last six in the process. Uh, five and a half is the win total for them this year. Uh, we have them at six and six, so just over that five and a half. And, you know, their top player transferred to Arizona, Jacob Cowing, uh, along with other key contributors, a wide receiver and offensive line and the secondary. Uh, UTEP was a one-year winner. Were they a one-year winner, Nick? Or do uh, the Miners have power, staying power in the new look Conference USA? I think that last piece is key uh, because Conference USA is changing and in a lot of ways, you know, not as difficult, at, at least looking uh, this year before Liberty joins. Um, I, I think that helps. I will say, and, and I know I admitted it a little bit last year, but um, we, meaning the, the numbers, were dead wrong about UTEP last year. I personally wasn't a believer early on. Um, but we, as you know, they had been the previous few years, had UTEP ranked among the very worst in college football. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was, you know, 125 or lower. Uh, and they came out and, you know, there, there are certainly some super smart folks out there. I remember this time last year saying, you know, this could be a sneaky bull team. This could be a team that uh, could be, you know, pick up several wins in, in the win column. And we just, you know, the way the numbers do it, and, and sometimes it's uh, because of, like I mentioned before, and, and you know, Nevada kind of maybe having the opposite, uh, where we put a little too much into past uh, results, recent history, and, and kind of miss what should be potentially an obvious breakout candidate, but we definitely missed on, on UTEP. So um, I think, especially because, you know, they, they did have a very strong year, at least at the beginning of the season, they, they did fall off toward the end when the schedule got more difficult, but uh, bringing back their starting quarterback, um, that's, that's big. I mean, Kevin Hardison, big, big arm in the conversation, I think, as uh, you know, strongest arm maybe at the group of five level, um, and that leads the opportunity for big plays. Unfortunately, Jacob Cowing is gone. Um, it's going to be fun to watch him see what he can do in Arizona, but he is going to be sorely missed at UTEP. Uh, they also will be without Justin Garrett, who's been you know a twenty was a twenty five game starter and a really solid complement to Jacob Cowing. They also do lose a couple of starters on the offensive line, but you know you, you do have some things to build around. Ronald Awat somewhat unexpectedly became the top running back because Dean Hankins was uh, banged up for quite a bit last year. Ronaldo Flores had a, a much bigger role, I think, than anybody expected. Does a variety of things, you know, plays running back, plays receiver. Um, had some big plays at times. They use a fullback, which is interesting. Use a couple of them, actually, uh, who get some playing time. Trent Thompson had a big, big bowl game um, and, and potentially could become, you know, a, a uh, solid, maybe even all-conference USA-type tight end. And then he didn't get a whole lot of, uh, you know, not a whole lot of targets, a whole lot of catches. But Tyron Smith is, I think, in line. If he doesn't completely take over that, Jacob Cowing, you know, big play that threat role uh, certainly should get a, a, you know, big target share should be the number one option uh, a lot for Gavin Hardison. So I think he's in line for, you know, a, a solid statistical season. Uh, I've read some 
really positive things about an incoming junior college transfer, Kelly Akiyari. Um, my apologies if, if I screwed that up, Kelly. Uh, and then got good news, at least I think, as I understand it, he is still on the roster. There was a little bit of a, you know, is he or is he not out of eligibility? But uh, Walter Don Jr., you know, who we think could be a starter, was injured a good bit last year, um, is still on the roster. So, you know, maybe the receiver group is a little bit better than it uh, would initially appear when you lose a guy as talented as Cowing, who I think does have an NFL future and we'll get to see, you know, certainly what he can do in a power five level. Um, but the defense, I think, has a chance to be maybe one of the best in Conference USA. I mean, they ranked 31st in defensive team performance last year nationally, uh, which I believe is the best, you know, either offense or defense best unit we've discussed so far uh, in, in this podcast series. They were right, you know, they were a top 25 uh, rushing defense um, in team performance. Top, you know, they were 42nd in, in passing. So there is a lot to like there. Uh, from what they did last season, and, and they ranked in the top 15 in returning production on the defensive side of the ball. Praise Amawule is an all-conference USA uh, edge defender who incredibly, you know, has been incredibly, incredibly productive the last couple of years. Keenan Stewart uh, and Kelton Moss on the interior of that defensive line are solid, one of the better interior defensive line duos in Conference USA, and they also bring back Jadarian Taylor on the other defensive end. So that is maybe, you know, in the conversation for the best defensive line in Conference USA. They ranked 22nd in our D-line performance ratings last season. And, uh, you know, Amawule and Stewart are among the highest rated defensive linemen in the country. Amawule is a 100-rated player in our individual team ratings. And Stewart is a 96, knocking on the door of, of you know, 97. Similar to what I said about Walter Dunn Jr., there was a little bit of a question as to whether or not Breon Hayward would be back, starting linebacker, uh, you know, top tackler. It appears he is. He is still on the roster. He and Tyrese Knight, again, very experienced duo, productive duo at linebacker. And then, you know, Dennis Barnes is the only returning starter at corner, uh, but had a very solid year last year. Uh, even played a little bit of offense, which is interesting. Be interesting to see if he continues to play some offense in 2022 at, at receiver, where, you know, obviously we talked about the turnover that they've got there. Um, but even though he's the only returning starter, there is some experience. Four guys come back who played at least 350 snaps, including two who played 700, Barnes and, and his fellow corner, uh, corner Tory Richardson. Uh, but five overall players with 200 or more snaps, six with over 100 snaps, a couple of other guys played 80 snaps. So it's not, you know, completely uh, bare or having to rely on, you know, first-timers. UTEP recruits JUCOs really heavily um, and usually, you know, has a lot of uh, players that um, start right away out of the JUCO. But you would expect that, uh, based on last year, based on getting these guys some playing time, that maybe they don't have to do that. Maybe they're able to kind of turn it over to that next group, uh, those two deep guys from last year who are now pressed into starting duty. And, you know, hopefully there's not a, a huge, huge drop-off. Um, I think that there are obviously winnable games on the schedule. Probably two automatic losses 
uh, at Oklahoma in week uh, one because they play North Texas in a Conference USA opener in week zero. Um, and then Boise State, who just you know manhandled UTEP last year. Uh, those are likely losses, but you know New Mexico and New Mexico State in the non-conference, those might be likely wins. And then their Conference USA schedule, um, every, every game is winnable. And then UTSA at the very end, I mean, I, I think that it is certainly possible that UTEP is going to be, you know, in the mix for back-to-back bowl games, which uh, recent history, you know, that that's pretty much unheard of. So um, I don't know, you know, if they're going to be able to build a consistent winner. It took a while for Dana Dimmel to, you know, make UTEP even competitive on a week-to-week basis, let alone a winner. But things set up, you know, decently well schedule-wise and uh, conference-wise. I mean, it's it, Conference USA is open, and UTEP has an experienced team and a really good defense. Uh, makes me think that, that they've got a legitimate shot to uh, at least put back-to-back winning years, back-to-back bowl seasons, and that's something that UTEP hasn't had in a while. Your thoughts on UTEP here, Xavier? Do you think uh, you think they could do what they did last season, or are you... Yeah, I don't see why they wouldn't be able – I'm not going to say they're going to go as, as far as what they did last season, but I'm not so certain that they won't be able to at least make a bowl game. Um, I, <clears throat> I absolutely agree with Nick. I feel like Conference USA is not the gauntlet that it may have been in the past. On top of that, I, their schedule gives them two bye weeks, one of which like right before their last two games of the year, which could be a, be a nice reset if you need those last two wins to make a bowl game, uh, playing FIU and then obviously your rival at, at UTSA. Uh, I like their non-conference schedule, North Texas, or excuse me, New Mexico State at New Mexico. Both of those games feel very winnable. Obviously, you have to go to Oklahoma uh, and you get Boise State at home, but you should at the very least go two and two in your non-conference schedule, um, lending yourself the ability to, you know, to get to a bowl game. They get Middle Tennessee and Rice. Uh, and Florida Atlantic in like this three-game stack uh, in between two bye weeks. So they should, at the very least, they'll go two and one as well. And then, like I said, it might come down to the last two games of the year against FIU and against your rival to possibly, you know, get to to a bowl game. So I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility for them to do that. I think the game at Charlotte – should be is more of a toss up, maybe even favored for them. Uh, so yeah, I think six to seven wins is what I'm comfortable with with UTEP. Uh, I will say though, they didn't instill a lot of confidence in me at first when I looked at their recruiting. Uh, they didn't bring in all that much on the transfer uh, portal. They they had a 182nd rating uh, for their transfers, uh, overall ranking of 130 in all of college football. Uh, as far as their recruiting was concerned last year. So that's not great. Uh, that's actually horrendous. So like I was a little bit concerned at first, uh, but you know, Nick, as he tends to do, brings out the numbers, bring, and you know, is able to, to back me off the ledge a little bit uh, from, from, you know, completely just, you know, writing off UTEP hundred percent. I think this is a team that can absolutely get to a bowl game. Uh, I think, like I said, it's going to take for them to kind of just, you know, take the ups and downs of this year's season. Um, and, and like I said, it may genuinely come down to the last two games of their season against FIU and UTSA to make it to a bowl game. But I think they have a chance. All right. The last team that we have up here, not one I'm excited to talk about. Rock Chalk. Kansas uh, 101. And of course, you know, the 57 56 upset win over Texas in Austin. <laughs> that I was there for first game I went to in Austin in 20 something years. So uh, there we go. But uh, look, there, there were signs, there were other signs of progress outside of that. They did finish two and 10, but 
Uh, they scared Oklahoma, TCU, and West Virginia, so much better than the record indicates. Uh, Vegas still not liking them. BK has them at two and a half. We have them at four and eight, so well over that two and a half. And the big question for Kansas is, Nick, can they turn these almost wins into wins and climb out of the cellar and upset some teams on the way? Because it looks like they're on that trajectory, at least. Kansas is a, a really interesting team to me for, for a variety of reasons. But one of those, the, the thing that you know comes uh, out to me first is they're a little bit of a case study in this part, you know, this, this end of the rankings, especially when we're talking about um, the lowest ranked teams in uh, the power five, the way we calculate things and, and we're not alone in this, but uh, we have projected point spreads for every game, right? And the way we project our win totals is you take those projected point spreads, you convert that to a projected winning percentage, you know, correlates with uh, historical uh, numbers and you add all those up. So Kansas uh, heavily, heavily favored as uh, against FCS opponent in week one, Tennessee tech 42 and a half point favorite. That is a 99% uh, expected win total. So we can basically say Kansas got win number one in the bag. You know, uh, 1% happens every once in a while. So uh, maybe we shouldn't get that you know crazy about it, but uh, they Kansas should get you know they get 0.99 wins in our projected win total in week one, and then things get considerably more difficult. Their non-conference uh, schedule outside of that game is pretty tough. Houston um, might be the best Group of Five team and and will be a Power Five uh, program here shortly. They also play Duke. You know Duke beat them last year. Uh, Duke is is uh, we we shared some reasons why we think we might be optimistic about Duke. Uh, so that is not a, a guaranteed uh, win, though it is certainly a possible win. But you you asked, are they going to you know climb out of the Big 12 cellar? It's been, what, seven, eight years uh, since the last time Kansas did not finish last in the Big 12 standings. And there are no, you know, there there are no other uh, games other than the Tennessee Tech uh, matchup where you say, yeah, that that's a win for Kansas. And so even though they've got a 20% chance to beat Houston, a you know 60, we do have them favored against Duke, a 60% chance in that game, a 34% chance against Iowa State, a 30% chance against TCU. But let's say they do beat the teams they're, you know, quote unquote, supposed to beat Tennessee Tech and, and Duke. Every other game, they are at least a touchdown underdog. You know, Iowa State is the closest at 7.12. They get Iowa State at home, and that's a team, you know, with a lot of, of turnover. So getting them early in the schedule is uh, is good. They play October 1st. But, you know, a, a team that is expected to be the worst in uh, the conference looks like the worst on paper, least talented, you know, roster strength ranks the lowest, team performer. I mean, the, last year the defense was among the worst in college football. Uh, what what you know how realistic is expecting a team you know because we have them projected to win four games but if they're an underdog of of you know a touchdown or more double digits in eight games nine games uh, as an underdog 
you know, can we realistically say, okay, yeah, these projected win percentages, you know, totaling them up the way we do at this end of the extreme, uh, you know, should we, should we think of a, a different way? Should we, should we think of these a little bit differently because, you know, 20% chance. Yeah. Yeah. That, that happens uh, one out of five times, but it, it's, it's really difficult to win a game that you're, uh, you know, a, a two touchdown underdog. I mean, that's a big upset. So when you're a two touchdown underdog against most teams in your conference, it it's, you know, it gets difficult. And that's why Kansas has put up a lot of, uh, you know, one and eight, one and seven, oh and eight uh, type conference records the last few years. And you could see it happening again. I certainly could. Nevertheless, I'm pretty positive about Kansas. I think, you know, you mentioned it wasn't just the win over Texas that we can get excited about. They gave Oklahoma a real scare early in that game. Uh, they played tough against West Virginia and TCU at the end of the game, or excuse me, at the end of the season. They were in both of those. They made a change at quarterback, and I mean, people are raving about Jalen Daniels, and, and he was super exciting last year. I still kind of like Jason Bean. He might be the fastest quarterback in the country. Will he be a good backup? Will he be? Um, you know, he is technically the returning starter, even though Daniels ended up uh, there at the end of the year. Um, I saw some whispers. I'm not sure, you know, anything that, that is actionable, you know, that Bean might, uh, make a position switch. That would be kind of interesting, but not only are they a, a really, really experienced team, Kansas ranks sixth in returning production overall, top 20 on both sides of the, the ball, you know, they added, uh, through the transfer portal, added significant pieces to an experienced roster that showed improvement over the end, you know, over the course of the season and, and at the end of the year was a dangerous team. Second half of the year, a dangerous team to some of the better teams, most talented teams in the Big Twelve. So, it's it's a tricky situation because you know we project four wins, and I wouldn't be shocked if Kansas wins four games. I mean, I really really like Devin Neal. Kai Thomas uh, did some really good things at Minnesota last year. Savion Morrison transferred in from Nebraska. I mean, that's a that's a solid Big 12 caliber running back group. Two experienced quarterbacks, you know, two starting receivers, starting tight end, and you added uh, another talented guy through the transfer portal. Four returning starters on the offensive line. Wasn't a great offensive line last year, but it's experience. Added two guys from the transfer portal. Defense, they really, really struggled last year, all facets. Uh, 129th in defensive team performance uh, overall, 127th against the run, 122nd against the pass. However, you know, the front seven, decently experienced, added a really interesting uh, edge defender, Lonnie Phelps, who was incredibly productive at Miami of Ohio. At the linebacker group, you know, uh, already probably the strongest group uh, on the roster. They added three potential impact transfers. Craig Young, uh, who you know looks like a starter, but was really highly rated coming out of high school, um, you know, signed with Ohio State. Uh, another highly productive group of five player, Lorenzo McCaskill, uh, coming from Louisiana, and then Eric Gilliard from UCF, who you know started twenty three games in his career. In the secondary, Kenny Logan looked like a an All Big Twelve caliber 
player at safety and you throw in three incoming transfers who might, you know, just end up as starters, um, guys who have been starters in the past, including Jarrett Paul from Eastern Michigan. Uh, and prior to that, I forget exactly where he was, but uh, was a starter at another school before going to Eastern Michigan. And then Marvin Grant was a starter at Purdue. Uh, at safety. So, you know, they're bringing in guys from Michigan State, another couple of guys from Buffalo, like I mentioned, Miami of Ohio, Ohio State. So they're they're bringing in, you know, your traditional transfers where you're, you're a low-rated team, bringing in guys who were, you know, four-star guys, didn't get a whole lot of playing time, drop down a little bit in competition, get a little more chance of playing uh, at, at a program like Kansas. But then they're also bringing up guys, you know, hey, you were solid at the the group of five level we're a starter we're trying to to make some progress here at p5 playing against for or playing against uh former pros week in and week out you know put good film against quality opponents on give us a chance and see what those kind of guys can do so i i i like what they're doing i like what i saw at the end of last season uh i think there are some i didn't like it <laughs> uh, there are some talented players, some players that you can get excited about. I mean, Devin Neal, you know, local guy, four-star guy, you're able to sign out of high school. I mean, he's somebody you can build around. But it looked like, especially when they had some injury issues at the running back position last year, it could have been a situation where they were in danger of uh, just overloading a player like him over the next you know two three years before he's ready to go to the NFL, and instead they were able to supplement with two really you know just as as uh, highly rated. In fact, both actually had slightly higher ratings coming out of high school, Kai Thomas and Savion Morrison, to add depth. So you know not only are you experienced, but this is a deeper team than it was last year. So I'm intrigued. I mean, I I think that we can uh expect a better week in and week out kansas more competitive kansas team it's just it's going to be difficult to actually you know come out ahead on the scoreboard at the end of the game uh because they are still at a talent disadvantage in every conference game and you know a few non-conference games as well so uh, it's it's going to be tough. It's going to be very, very difficult for Kansas to get, you know, over and to take another step toward maybe becoming bowl eligible, you know, bowl eligible again someday. Uh, but this is a better Kansas team, and, and there are some single, you know, individual players that you can get excited about, but I think you can also get excited that, that the roster's in better shape. It's deeper. It's a little more talented. And, you know, maybe they will break through and, and actually win a couple of the games uh, where they're a double-digit underdog or, or bigger than a touchdown underdog. I can see it. It's just it's difficult to get there. Xavier, your thoughts on, on Kansas, obviously. You know, better than the record last year. Had the big mm -hmm. upset win in Austin. Um, scared some teams, too. Remember, I think wasn't Caleb Williams. Was that the game Rattler was benched or Caleb Williams was benched for? Rattler? Caleb Williams was benched for Rattler, who was then benched for Caleb Williams. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Again, well, that was right. the one where he had the, the handoff, right? Yes. Yeah, the handoff yeah. where he ripped it out of the running back's hand <laughs> and ran it past uh, the marker on for the mm -hmm. one. I remember that. Mm -hmm. guy. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah. what do you think about Kansas? Are, are they getting better? Is this yeah. still middling? What do you think? 
No, I mean, you got to see what's happening with the fighting Lance Leopolds. Like, they're getting better. He's building a program here, and he's doing so not only on the field, but through the, through the recruiting trip, right? They finished with the 21st uh, best transfer rating in college football last year. They brought in some excellent talent from in and around, you know, the P5 and G5. Obviously, kids from Buffalo wanted to go play for their former coach. So that was something big that they were able to do. They brought in, you know, Craig Young from Ohio State. Uh, you know, Savon Morrison from Nebraska, Kayvon Durbin from uh, uh, from Michigan State as well. Like, this is a guy who continuously has shown an ability to to help a team out. And on the recruiting trail, with a with a 65 overall rated uh, recruit uh, recruiting class, excuse me. You know, obviously, and they already have 10 enrollees, which tells me that he's trying to get kids to get in there early to, you know, change, you know, the complexion of the school, to be perfectly honest with you. You know, you typically don't even have, you know, five enrollees at this point, let alone 10. You know, you typically get a lot of freshmen in towards the fall. But for Lance to get a bunch of guys to come in and, and buy into getting in there during the springtime so they can also go through summer workouts it is a big thing for, for a team like Kansas that's trying to change a culture more than just a football team, right? Uh, so I love what's, what's happening uh, at Kansas. And like we talked about when Lance got there in the first place, this was something they needed to do. They needed to go get a program builder instead of just with the Les Miles where it was like, hey, we got a big name. Let's go with a program builder. And I, and I love what he's doing uh, at Kansas. I think they're going to just get get better. From a, from a win standpoint, I got him at three. I think that's all I can do as, as confident as I am of the direction that they're going into. I think three, if they get to four, you know, kudos. But I think three is what I'm comfortable sitting at. Uh, I think Tennessee Tech – um, Duke, and I'm not so sure that at West Virginia isn't a win for them, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, I'm not sure that we won't be looking at Kansas as possibly a three-in-one ball club going into October th uh, this year, which everybody take a screenshot if that happens because that might be the, the first time <laughs> in a long time that Kansas has been had a one in the loss column and not the win column. Uh, so I, I think that, you know, you know uh, that game against West Virginia, and then maybe there's one that left. There's maybe the game against TCU – Maybe Iowa State's reeling a little bit. You know, Iowa State's been a team that now, you know, you've lost a ton of talent there at Iowa State. So maybe I'm trying to find another place for Kansas to get to that four-win mark uh, that we have them at. Uh, I just don't see it happening. Uh, maybe it's Texas. They get them at home this year. So, hey, hey. you know. <laughs> hey. <laughs> well, I mean, I can guarantee you Texas will not take Kansas lightly. Uh, I, I, yeah, I can guarantee you that one. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, I don't know. They've got, you know, funny enough, they've got this six-game stretch to start the year off um, where I think they could – or five-game stretch, excuse me. That I think they could really, you know, challenge a lot of the teams in there, if not win. Uh, that first, you know, four or five, uh, five or six games to start off, Tennessee Tech, West Virginia, Houston, Duke, Iowa State, and uh, TCU might be where, you know, Kansas is able to get those four wins. After that, you start getting into more of the juggernauts of the conference, your Oklahomas, your Baylors, your Oklahoma States, even and your Texases. So I think if you're going to get, you know, some momentum or enough momentum to get to four wins, it's going to be in that first five to six. Uh, so I like what Lance Leopold is doing at Kansas. I, I would love to see Kansas as a relevant football team uh, because, you know, all it's been is a basketball school for the majority of my life. Uh, so I would love to see Kansas all of a sudden just, you know, especially as, you know, Texas and Oklahoma leaving the Big 12. Somehow Kansas finds its way into the middle and then towards the top in the next couple of years. It would just be a fun rise from a team that's been in the pretty much in the basement for the last, you know, decade and a half. It might be running out of time to win the Big 12. Uh, don't know if it'll be around. So It'll just be the Pac-12 Pac East. <laughs> yeah, it could be. We'll see uh, what ends up happening there. But that is going to wrap it up uh, for today's show. All these team previews. And look, 
we're next week we're moving into the double digits finally so one more triple digit team at 100 and then moving on, on and, an under or two we'll see yeah and we'll be on an under or two see so uh you know we are moving forward moving onward and upward in these team previews but remember you can follow us all on twitter in the meantime at bogman sports for myself at cfb winning edge for nick and at xavier underscore trish trich for xavier we will see you guys next week take it easy everybody Thank you to our Patreon supporters for keeping our show ad-free and for funding our wide range of college football analytics projects. Thanks also to Blake Austin for our theme music. To learn more about CFB Winning Edge, visit patreon.com slash CFB Winning Edge or follow us on Twitter at CFB Winning Edge. Mm -hmm.